the twelve-tongued god smiled at my father, then looked at me with a face both bored and disgusted. Once my father was dressed, we began to walk back to the emergency room to handle his paperwork. I can do it, I said. You go back. The meter's almost up. Okay, good idea, he said, and disappeared in the direction of radiology. For what I hoped would be the last time, I walked by the grieving family. I stepped into their family circle. The pain in my back, the fire of the twelve made it difficult to walk. I spoke clearly. Whoever you think you've lost is not lost. Go home. They looked at me like I was a static, garbled television. Go home. Whoever it is, they're alive and well. How? A woman said. It just is. They just are. Strange miracle. And now you've realized the power of family bonds. Everyone wins. It's so unlikely, said a man who I assume was some kind of uncle. Feels almost cheap, he said, grinning despite himself. Oh, yeah, I said. It is what it is. The colorful nurse walked by. Coward! She screamed at a nearby doctor. I skipped into the emergency room. All of the broken people there groaned and groaned. I made my voice big and announced to the masses, There's been a great miracle. None of you are hurt. Go home. They looked up at me and blinked. Some smiled weakly, but none moved. Please be decent, the attendant hissed. He looked at me with pleading eyes. Please, sir, said the clerk at the window who needed my father's insurance information. Here you go, I said, and threw the insurance cards at her. She stared at me, and then went to pick the cards up from the floor. While she was bent over, I leaned over the threshold and punched the intercom. I spoke into it, and my voice flew all over the hospital. You are all healed. Go home. This is the hospital where sickness ends. Everything will be fine, and you are happier than you've ever been. Leave. Everyone is good, especially you. Sir, the attendant said. But I was already running toward radiology. The tube-tied old man was very, very slowly pulling himself free of the plastic. The other man was also sitting up, eyes opened and locked on me. I felt my twelve like it was a new brand. That's it, I said. Go forth and be healed. I'm trying to help you. I was happy. As happy as a sunflower in a field of other less radiant sunflowers. The man with tubes crawled to the edge of his bed, then fell flat on his face toward the tile floor. I screamed, No! And the man, dislodged finally from all the tubes, froze in the air. A weightless icon, a displaced swimmer who waded in the open air. With great effort, he looked up at me as he floated. This is the hospital where the affliction is flight he said. Then he returned to the call of gravity and fell hard back down to the ground. 
He did not move once he was there. The other man never took his eyes off me. This is that place, he said. I ran away toward the entrance. A sea of hospital gown-wearing humans surrounded the security guard. She tried desperately to direct groaning patients back to wherever they belonged. She caught my eye and scowled as I ran by. Please, no running, the security guard yelled. Outside, my father was sitting in the driver's seat. I was relieved to be a passenger. From all the entrances and exits of the hospital, hobbled, hurt people were emerging. They were mostly old. Anywhere else they'd be untreatable. And still they made their way out into the sunshine. The affliction is flight, I thought with a hazy focus. The only kind I could muster with the exploding pain I felt in my back. And suddenly, just as they stepped through the threshold into the outside, the old sick bodies rose into the air and floated a few inches above the ground. There they hovered, weightless, immaculate, wearing thin hospital gowns and colorful socks. They were in the air for almost ten seconds, taking careful steps forward, before they fell back to the earth. Their ankles gave out immediately. On the ground they crawled like babies if they moved at all. More stepped forward, flew, then fell. It kept happening. It kept happening. I turned to my father. He stared at all the people flooding and floating out of the hospital. He shook his head and said, What have you done? It's about a hospital where people can fly, I said. What have you done? He begged. Zimmerland Welcome to Zimmerland, Lady Justice says. I flash my ID badge at Miriam. She frowns at me from her chair in the front box office. I use the employee entrance behind Lady Justice, all thirty feet of her. When it's quiet, you can hear the gears that move the huge scale she's holding up and down. The sword she has in her other hand is longer than my body, and it points directly at you when you're at the ticket booth. I sprint to Cassidy Lane, a cul-de-sac module with working streetlights and automated bird chirps. When I get to the back door of House 327, the fourth house on the lane, I'm sweaty, which I can work with. The bathroom in House 327 is the primary player's changing room. There's a timer above the toilet that lets the primary player, me most of the time, know when patrons expect to start getting their justice on. Two minutes... I strip down to my briefs, then I put on my armor. We use outdated versions of the exoskeleton battle suits that the Marines use. I start with the mecha bottoms, a pair of hard brown orgametal pants that make me limp before they're activated. Once they're activated, I can squat a half ton. Once I have the mecha bottoms on, I jump into baggy jeans. Then I latch into my mecha top two orgametal panels that snap together over my chest and back. It feels like a skin-on-skin -skin hug that doesn't stop. With my top secure, I open a pack of stretchy white tees. There are three in the bag. I'll go through at least two bags this shift. I throw on boots, 
and I put on dark sunglasses to protect my eyes. I take a deep breath. The mirror in the bathroom is two panels. I check myself out on one side, make sure I look the part. The other panel is a large receiver screen that shows me the inside of House 336 and the patron-slash-patrons I'll soon be introduced to. I tighten my belt. I touch my toes and swing my arms a few times. The last thing I do is grab what looks like a skinny joint, but is actually the remote to activate the mecha suit. I locate myself in Cassidy Lane's primary player, a young man who is up to no good or nothing at all. I tuck the trigger slash joint behind my ear as the buzzer goes off. I watch the screen. The patron looks like he's in his forties. He's kind of fat with reddish hair and wearing jeans and a t-shirt. He sits on a couch. He has an orange bracelet on his wrist, which means he signed the waiver for full contact. Green means I can't touch them. Orange means I can engage the patron with reasonable and moderate physical contact to enhance the module's visceral engagement. Green or orange. I don't know which patrons are worse. The induction process begins. In House 336, a voice like warm gravy comes in through speakers shaped like books on a bookcase. Welcome to Cassidy Lane. Your home. Your safe place. The voice recaps how the patron has performed to that point, explaining everything in a tight little narrative. It covers whether or not they succeeded in identifying who was stealing money at the work jerk module, how amazing it was when they stopped that terrorist plot during the terror train module, if they chose to pay an additional $35, and how now, finally they can go relax, safe at home. That is, until... The voice tremors with worry. What's this? It seems today isn't just any day on Cassidy Lane. Then an automation sends the blind shooting open, as if the house is possessed by a poltergeist. He's here again. The stranger. You've seen him walking around, wandering closer and closer to your home. This week, you're the head of the neighborhood watch. Maybe it's time you asked him a few questions. A chime goes off. Three holes in the wooden floor open, and up pop three different pedestals. Pedestal A has a holophone that could be used to call the cops, family members, or anybody else. Pedestal B has a gun, a BB gun that sounds and looks like the real thing. And Pedestal C is empty. It's for the tough guy patrons. Almost all patrons, 84% when I've been on the module, grab the gun on Pedestal B. Almost nobody uses the holophone. Remember, this is your home, not his. And then it begins. I go outside, breathe in the fresh air, then loiter. I stand around and do nothing. I look at my phone, and once in a while I touch the joint behind my ear, and then I walk down the street slowly. The patron opens his door. He's not smiling. The engagement protocol on the lane is response through mimicry. If he's not smiling at me, I'm definitely not smiling back at him. Hey, buddy the first patron of the day says to me. I look at him like he's looking at me, eyes squinting, 
jaw clenched. Hey, buddy, I say from the sidewalk. He's in the street coming toward me. I've got a question for you, he says, kind of jogging toward me. That's all right, I say, and make to walk away. Now you wait just a second. I want to know what you're doing here. What are you doing here? I ask. The patron's cheeks get red. Then his chest puffs out. He steps up onto the sidewalk so we can be about the same height. I live here. This is my home. I belong here. So do I, I say. You still haven't answered my question. What is it you're doing here? You still haven't answered my question either, I say. He moves his head to look around, then focuses back on me. I just did. I live here. That's what I'm doing, living. Now what are you doing? Same, I say. Living. Then I turn my back to him to keep walking away. You listen to me. I don't want any trouble. I'm asking you a simple question. He raises his voice, so I do too. I'm not answering any of your questions, I say, turning back to look at him. His hands hover near his waistline. Then, I'm going to have to ask you to get on out of here. You in charge? I ask. You're the boss of the world. To you I am. Now fuck out of here. What? I say. I said get the fuck out of here. The patron says. He's screaming at me. I'm not going anywhere, I say without raising my voice, ignoring engagement protocol. Listen, I don't want any thugs out here. You have to go. I march a little circle around the man and laugh. I'm going to do what I want. His fist catches me under the ear, and it makes me shuffle back. He knocks the glasses off my face. I don't usually get caught so off guard. I grab the joint behind my ear and put it in my mouth. I bite down on it, and the pressure triggers mecha suit activation. The organ metal on my legs and chest expands, and I can feel it sinking to my body. The organ metal hugs me tighter, and soon I can't tell where the machine starts and the human begins. Everything gets easier. Activating the suit feels like stepping out of water into open air. Like freedom. I had to do a week of training in the suit to get certified to use it. Fuck you, I say. And it's easy to be a convincing actor. The organ metal makes the pants that were baggy tight. Same for my shirt. I become a huge block of muscle. Something different. More dangerous than a man. My head hurts. The patron's eyes go wide for a second. I locate. I'm a kid hit by a stranger. Instead of his face, I punch a car that's in a driveway near me. The metal folds around my fist. Then I walk toward him. I take two steps. He points the handgun at me. I locate. Your life is in the hands of someone who doesn't even know you and thinks you don't deserve it. Wait, I say. He shoots. 
faux bullets explode on my chest. The mecha suit is tweaked so pouches of red blood from one of four pockets burst on any high-velocity impact. I have to replace the blood pouches in the pockets every four walkthroughs. What's left to do? I charge. My stomps are heavy and huge. He shoots again. I make sure I'm close enough that when the pouch explodes, warm what would be blood gets on the patron's face. He's breathing hard, and murder paint, trademark, faux blood, is sprinkled on his face, and he's forgotten that he paid to be here with me. I touch the patron's neck with my orgometal-enhanced hand. He pulls the trigger again. His shirt gets drenched. It looks almost like he's the one who's been shot. I cough a death cough, and then I fall at his feet. I make, oh, ah, uh, sounds. The patron looks down at me. Pop! Goes the gun a final time. I can barely feel the shot hit my chest because of the suit. I'm quiet. Dead with my eyes open staring into the sky slashed the patron's eyes, staring right into his human. The patron runs to House 336, then back to my body. He picks up my glasses, then puts them down, wipes them off with his shirt. He's scared and thrilled. After exactly three minutes of the patrons not knowing what to do, Three minutes of his thinking about taking my pulse, then thinking better of it. Three minutes of his making a sound I always hope is the thing before real honest tears, but is often just panicky breath. Sirens go off. Sala and Ash, playing cop number one and number two, drive into the lane. They jump out of the car and sound very stern as they ask the patron what happened. He attacked me, the patron says. He tried to kill me. I keep my eyes dead and continue to shallow breathe. According to the guidelines, he's to be brought into the second part of the module. The station, for a brief questioning, after which he'll be emailed a complimentary story about how he was found innocent in court after claiming self-defense. When Sala and Ash take the patron away, I lie on the concrete for another minute before getting up. Then I press a release trigger near my belly button to disengage the mecha suit. I go to change my shirt and wait for the next patron. When patrons leave and fill out their post-module surveys, which have a rating ranging from one, meaning not at all, to five, meaning absolutely, they mark five all through the questionnaire if I was on the clock. Did they have fun? Five. Did they viscerally feel justice was at work? Five. Would they come again? Five. In the comments section, they write things like, I'll be back soon. I'd bring my kid if I could. I do six more walkthroughs that morning. I don't really feel like eating with anyone on my lunch, so I stay in my dressing room. Normally I eat with Sala, and we joke about how much we hate working, but she's been picking up more walkthroughs at the terror train so I stay in the dressing room until it's time to go get shot some more. Then I clock out. I wave to Miriam and say, That's my time, and she punches me out. Once I made the mistake of getting into my car when the protesters were out in the lot.
Since then, there's some kind of thing waiting for me at the end of every other shift. Sometimes it's eggs on the window, with not nice things drawn into the splattered yolks. Today, I see too many papers to count wind-blown and scattered in the area around my car. A bunch of them are stuck under the windshield. They flutter like leaves. I bite my lip and grab one of the papers before wiping the rest of them away. It says, Christopher Coonlumbus, which I think is pretty funny. The first time they tagged my car, I cried with Melanie about it. Now, I wipe away the flyers. I get in my car and hit the preset for my place. The car starts moving, and I recline for a nap. I'll be half asleep when I get home, and I won't have time to think about anything before I'm gone to bed. I wake up thinking about putting on a tie. When I got the promotion, the first thing I bought was a new tie. I imagine Melanie looking at me, her face soft with admiration. I imagine her nodding and smoothing out my collar. I don't know why I imagine that, because she rarely did that kind of thing even when we were together. She definitely never did that kind of thing after that article. In Justice Park, the pay-to-play death of morality in America came out, and the protesters started getting national coverage. Every day for a month, the news truck circled around the park. Then they got bored and left, and it was just the protesters again. They weren't going to get bored. After all that, even at home... I was a sellout for months. Why do you still work there, Zay? She'd say. When I was up late drafting a proposal for a new module on my own time, with no guarantee anybody would even see the work. Because it's a solid job, I'd say, even though that wasn't the reason at all. Then she'd say something like, What's a job without a soul? and then I'd stop what I was doing and consider explaining to her for the millionth time that I hadn't sold my soul. But it's okay for you to eat here. To live here? That's cool, I'd say instead. And I wouldn't bother with my usual argument, that it was better for me to get fake-blasted ten or twenty million times a day than for an actual kid to get murdered out in the world forever. Did anyone ever think of that? Ever? Really? She'd say. Then I'd feel bad for making her feel bad about not having a job. We were a good team, and before Zimmerland, we rarely made each other feel bad on purpose. I'm sorry, I'd say, and go from wherever I was in the apartment to right beside her, and she'd be like, I just don't want you doing things that aren't you and she'd rub my back, and I'd remember I love her for real, and have since sophomore theater players. After Melanie left me, Sala asked me if I hated her. To be funny, I answered like this. On a scale from one to five, one being not at all and five being absolutely, and I'd pay money to go back even though she shattered my heart to pieces when she left me, and then when she got with Heland, it was like she took those pieces and somehow further obliterated them to some kind of heart dust that she then sprinkled into the sun. 
I love her a five. We laughed at that. I can imagine Melanie looking at me now, as I'm tightening my tie, and ready almost an hour before I need to be, heading to the creative meeting I always said I'd get to. Why do you still work there, Zay? Well, Melanie, I think as I look in the mirror one last time. Because maybe there's a version of the park that isn't complete trash. And also because even though it makes me want to rip my eyes out when I see you with Heland, at least I still see you. And sometimes we even speak. That's why. I manual drive all the way there. I park in the employee lot. It's sunny outside, and we won't open until almost two. It's not even 9.30. Creative meets at ten. I see cars in the lot. It's disappointing. I wanted to be first. I wanted everyone to sit down after I was already seated, and for each of them to take note of me. Most of the lot is roped off with police tape and keep-out signs. Beyond the taped-off space, there are plaster walls that hide the new module they're building. In front of the construction site, there's the trailer that management uses for meetings. I open the door. The trailer is full. Everyone gets quiet and looks at me the way little kids look at themselves when one of them has done something wrong. Helan's floating head speaks first. Thanks for joining us, Isaiah. His hologram says, smiling kindly. Helan Zimmer, the CEO of Zimmerland. In person, he looks like he wakes up every morning and chops a few trees down before eating half a dozen raw eggs. When he's projecting via holocom, he's a giant head with a beard. Also, he's white. A fact protesters remind me of very, very often. Heland is an idiot. An idiot who thinks he's doing the right thing. I think. An idiot with a black girlfriend named Melanie. Which probably makes him at least 20% less racist in the eyes of consumers according to some focus group somewhere. What? I say. The others on the creative team are looking at me. We're just getting ready to wrap up. But have a seat. I look at Helan's floating head. Sorry, I say. Don't worry about it. Get comfortable, Helan says. Chairs scoot up so I can pass. There aren't any seats left. So I stand in the back of the room next to the table bearing the carcass of a fruit platter and a puddle of coffee. All right, Helan continues. As you know... It has been a trying time for us, but we believe our future is secure. Next week, Lot 4 will finally open up, and with it, a new chapter in interactive justice engagement. Doug, want to take it from here? Doug is sitting down with a laptop in front of him. Doug is Helan's right-hand guy. He's the president of Park Operations and leads the creative team. Once after I'd fully engaged the mecha suit, a patron called me a fucking ape. He'd screamed, Go back to Africa! I grabbed him by his head. His feet dangled. I hit him once on his side. I punched him so hard I broke two of his ribs. When Doug wrote me up for it, he told me it was a formality not to worry about it. Then, two weeks ago, 
When I first stopped engaging customers with any real aggression, he said, Make sure your heart's still in it because somebody else might want the job. Love to, Doug says. Zimmerland values creativity and innovation, always with its mission in mind. He clicks something on the laptop. The Zimmerland mission statement hovers in the air behind him in hologram blue. Zimmerland mission. One, to create a safe space for adults to explore problem-solving justice and judgment. Two, to provide the tools for patrons to learn about themselves in curated heightened situations. Three, to entertain. The things Zimmerland aims to do at its core have not changed. And we've delivered with the situational modules we've provided. Now, thanks to the information gathered from our patrons and the creative team's work, we are officially ready to expand Zimmerland and generate a significant increase in revenue, all while extending the reach of the park into a greater portion of the market. Our new module will spearhead this transition. This is the future of Zimmerland. There's an unnecessary flash. Then the mission statement reappears. Zimmerland Mission one, to create a safe space to explore problem-solving, justice, and judgment. Two, to provide the tools for patrons to learn about themselves in curated heightened situations. Three, to entertain patrons of all ages. When I see the difference, my throat dries up. Starting a week from today, Zimmerland will officially be open to patrons of all ages and Lot 4 will be revealed as PS-911. The hologram flashes into a three-dimensional representation of the building soon to be unveiled outside. It's a small school. Doug explains the basic premise of the new module, how it will focus on juvenile decision-making slash justice implementation, and how with only their eyes, their ears, and their wits, Youths will have to figure out who in the building is the terrorist planning to plant a bomb in the gym. Doug touches his laptop some more to take us through the halls and explains how many choices the module will offer patrons. You might team up with other patrons to stop the terrorist, or maybe sneak off and take on the terrorists alone, or maybe you aren't decisive enough and die in a violent explosion. He says the revisitability of the module will be greater than any module we've ever had before. Any questions? He finishes. Somebody asks who the primary players will be. Doug explains there will be some new hires coming in for training this week, and also that any current players who want a shot should audition the following week. I raise my hand. Does... This mean the other modules will be open to kids now? I know the answer, but I want to see everybody hear it plain and clear. Well, yes, Doug says. Even our most popular outfits have started to see a sort of dry spell. The new traffic should alleviate that and create some dynamic new possibilities. And... Of course, we'll start some testing in this new direction this week before we go live, Helen says. Any other questions? 
Doug asks. Everybody's quiet because everybody wants to go. I have a lot more questions. All right, that's great, guys, Doug says. I'm really excited to see what we can do these next few weeks. Helen's giant head nods. That's the signal for everybody to go. I watch the others leave. Doug is the only other black person on the creative team. I was going to say something about that in the meeting. Just as a talking point. Just as something to get everyone thinking about what the park is doing and what it could do. I don't leave with everyone else. Doug sits down. Helen blinks. I was told the meeting was going to be at ten, I say. I've already pulled up the email from Doug, which clearly said ten. Oh, that's my bad, Doug says as I push the screen toward his face. When I see he's not interested, I take it back. That was the old meeting time. I meant to switch that. No harm, no foul, Helen says, smiling. Nine from now on sound good. I had some things I wanted to bring up in the meeting. I have several things I wanted to bring up. I think Cassidy Lane needs some big changes. Cassidy Lane is still the most profitable of all the modules, Doug says. Looking at Heland, not me. What's on your mind, Heland says. I can't not think about Melanie when I see Heland. Well... I think we need to offer more choices in the prep so the firearm option doesn't seem like the only one that will be... I paused looking for the word that I think they'd want to hear. Entertaining. Right now, I think the module is kind of flat. It could be a lot more dynamic. There are a lot of opportunities before the patron meets player portion of the module for some interesting problem-solving work. I mean, I hear you, Isaiah, Doug says, but it sounds like you want to take the thing that makes the module entertaining and strip it down. It's about being dunked into a situation and making the hard choice. How do you have real justice without life-and-death decisions? You know, some fireworks. You don't. That's how. I look at Doug. I've been working the module for more than a year. The majority of the patrons are revisitors who just want to kill me over and over again. It isn't a hard choice for them. I think we could make killing a less obvious option. And we could also make the killing, if they do choose that, matter more in the post-sequence. It'd be more intense. I've drafted a thorough plan for an accessory to Cassidy Lane which they could pay for in advance that would take them through a trial process, where maybe they could find out that their decision to kill leads to a life in prison. Or they might have to meet the family of the guy they killed or something. I hear you, and you should definitely send me any plans you have, Doug says, but it's important to remember that we want to capture that visceral, intense, in-your-face moment when justice is begging you to do something and... I think we're equating killing and justice for our patrons, I say flatly. Well, 
Sometimes it's the same, Helen says, and sometimes it isn't. That's the magic of the module. Another thing, I know Helen and Doug want to go, but I have a lot more to say. I don't think the mecha suit is necessary anymore. It isn't realistic enough to justify itself in the module. You're killing me, Doug says. The moment when you activate your suit is literally the point of all modules, where patrons feel most viscerally connected to the experience. That's the exact feeling we're going for. We need it. Plus, it protects you. It's a liability issue. How many teenagers in the world can afford a mecha suit? It's surprising, but it isn't real life. A kid wouldn't have a mecha suit. He wouldn't be able to become a tank and fight off a grown man. He wouldn't fight through gunshots. I realize I'm breathing hard, so I try to slow down. I get that, Doug says, closing his laptop. These ideas are all worth exploring for sure. Send me an email, and we'll wrap at the next meeting. Creative meets once a month. That's great. I like your enthusiasm, Isaiah. Helan says. Thanks, I say, and I walk out of the trailer leaving Doug and Helan to discuss other things and ignore what I've just told them. The first time I really spoke to Heland was at the new employee banquet. I'd brought Melanie. Helan had told me about his work on Wall Street, how he gave up all that money to be a social worker in Albany, how he'd helped high-risk kids smooth things out and found permanent housing for former addicts, Zimmerland was the next step in the evolving face of social interconnectivity and welfare promotion. He said that to me, and it's not that I believed him, but I didn't think he was lying either. Plus, I needed a job. I head out to go do nothing until it's time for me to come back to the park and work my shift. It's still early, so my car is clean. No flyers asking me what it's like to sell my soul. It's there, in that open lot with no place to hide that I see her. Getting out of her own car. Going to the park to see Doug and maybe talk about the new hires. She's the new head of human resources at the park. How can you work here, Melanie? I'd ask the second time I saw her in the park. The first time I couldn't say anything at all. Well, I see it now she'd said. I get it. Zimmerland could really actually help people see the craziness all around them. But that's not what I meant when I asked. I meant, how could she stand to work so near to me and know we would never be the same? Hey, she calls. The sound of her voice makes me wish I were a better person. Hey, I say, and we both walk closer. When we're only a foot away from each other, we just stand there. How was the big meeting? Melanie asks. At some point, when we were still living together, I'd suggested Melanie try to see if Heland would hire her. I'd been joking, mostly. Heland had a talk with me when he first started seeing Melanie, which was not long after she started working in the park. I don't know when she'd first interviewed She'd left me already by then. He'd said, 
Melanie, is that cool? I'd said, don't worry about it. Then two weeks ago, he called me into his office and said that Melanie had suggested me for a spot on the park's creative development team. When he asked if I wanted it, I snapped out of imagining what strangling him would feel like to say, I'd love that. It was awesome, I say to Melanie. She smiles. I stare at her mouth. That's great, she says. She touches my shoulder, which makes me feel amazing, then pathetic. Yeah, I say. Then I walk to my car, and she walks to wherever it is she has to go. Later that day, I have ten walkthroughs. Eight times out of ten, I get murdered. That night I dream about getting killed. Murdered by a bullet. I dream this dream often. But this time, after I'm dead, I feel my soul peeling from my body. My soul looks down at the body and says, I'm here. People say, sell your soul like it's easy. But your soul is yours and it's not for sale. Even if you try, it'll still be there, waiting for you to remember it. The next day, before we open, we have a park-wide meeting with all the players from the different modules gathered in the area just in front of Lot 4. The new module is up. There's an American flag flapping on the front lawn of the little school and a sign that says PS911 up front. Melanie is up on a small platform in front of Lot 4, along with Doug and a hologram of Helan's head. Today Helan's body is meeting with investors in Cabo. You okay? Sala pokes my side. Sala's half Indian, half Irish. She usually plays one of three Muslims, who may or may not have something to do with a terror plot that could lead to the death of several passengers on a train from City A to City B in the terror train module. Heland explains first that he's very happy with all the hard work we've been doing, and that we should all know the park couldn't exist without us. The face of real-time justice action is changing. We were the first and it's only right that we continue to innovate and provide the world with life-changing experiences that foster real growth. Then Heland announces that Zimmerland will now be open to children. He explains that the newest module, the school behind him, PS911, will actually be curated specifically for youths. Sala grabs my hand, then lets it go. Some other players look at one another awkwardly. Melanie bites her lip. At least she knows. Now, things will be a little different in terms of the patrons we see, but your jobs will be essentially the same. Keep pushing for the visceral, Doug says in his heavy, comforting voice. If you have any questions about the future of Zimmerland, please see me, Doug points to himself. And if you're new and you have questions about your position and how to fit your role... Please see Melanie. Okay, that's all, Helan says. The crowd lingers a little, then floats away. Jesus, Sala says. I know, I say.
We have to get out of here, she says. At least before, it was like, maybe we could have done some kind of good. We still can, maybe. I say to convince myself as much as her. We can still change some people. We have to get out of here, Sala says. I just got put on creative development. So what? So I can't just quit. You can do whatever you want, Sala says. Don't quit, I say. Wow, she says. We look at each other. Then she hugs me. Then she's gone. And I go to Cassidy Lane. In the bathroom of House 327, I get ready. I skim the updated protocol that explicitly says not to touch the kids. All children wear green bracelets. I may, however, engage in the usual measured violence with of-age patrons in front of the children. I'm walking through the lane, minding my business or up to no good just like every other person in the world. Door 336 opens. I see a man walk outside. He stretches on his front lawn, then turns to me. I don't know the man's name, but he's come to shoot me so many times it's almost like we're family. Then I see his son peeking out of the house. A little kid, as promised. He might be eleven. His father stomps in my direction. Hey! You're not up to any trouble out here, are you? The patron says. He's got a little bit of gut that sags out over his pants. Probably in his early forties. His hair is chopped close to the head. He's wearing a shirt with a knight on it. A local high school team's mascot. He always wears it. It's his killing shirt. It's stained a brownish red already. No, I say flatly. Well, I think you're out here causing trouble. The kid is out on the lawn now. He has a hat that's a little too big for him on his head. We're only a few mailboxes apart. Well, if you think that, what am I supposed to do? His face reddens. Listen, this is where I live, and I am not going to have you causing trouble in my home. Trouble like what? I ask. Listen, either you leave right now, or we're going to have problems. You know what? I yell and then he hits me in the stomach. I fall to my knees and try to take a breath. I feel the mecha suit begging me to make this easy. I get up slowly. I put the trigger on the ground. Come on! Get out of here! He says. He shoves me down again. I jump up, push his arms away. Are you happy now? Are you? I scream. Dad! His kid comes running to his side. His young, green bracelet-wearing hand clings to his father's jeans as the patron pulls the gun from his waist. Stay behind me, he says to his kid. Friday Black Get to your sections! Angela screams. Ravenous humans howl. 
Our gate whines and rattles as they shake and pull their grubby fingers like worms through the grating. I sit atop a tiny cabin roof made of hard plastic. My legs hang near the windows, and fleeces hang inside of it. I hold my reach, an eight-foot-long metal pole with a small plastic mouth at the end for grabbing hangers off the highest racks. I also use my reach to smack down Friday heads. It's my fourth Black Friday. On my first, a man from Connecticut bit a hole into my tricep. His slobber hot. I left the sales floor for ten minutes so they could patch me up. Now I have a jagged smile on my left arm. A sickle. Half circle. My lucky Friday scar. I hear Richard's shoes flopping toward me. You ready, big guy? He asks. I open one eye and look at him. I've never not been ready. So I don't say anything and close my eyes again. I get it. I get it. Eye of the tiger. I like it, Richard says. I nod slowly. He's nervous. He's a district manager, and this is the prominent mall. We're the biggest store in his territory. We're supposed to do a million over the next thirty days. Most of it's on me. The main gate creaks and groans. I saw the super shell in the back. What's she wear, medium or large? Large, I say, opening both my eyes. There's a contest. Whoever has the most sales gets to take home any coat in the store. When Richard asked me what I was going to do if I won, I told him that when I won, I was going to give one of the super shell parkas to my mother. Richard frowned but said that was honorable. I said that. Yeah, it was. The super shells are the most expensive coats we have this season. Down-filled lofted exterior with a water-repellent finish, zip vents to keep the thing breathable, elastic hems plus faux fur on the hood for a luxurious touch. I know Richard would have me choose literally anything else. That's half of why I chose it. I set it aside in the back. It's the only large we've got due to a shipment glitch. Nobody will touch it, because I'm me. Most of the Friday heads are here for the pole face trademark stuff. And whose name is lined up with the pole face trademark section on the daily breakdown each day this weekend? It's not Lance or Mikkel, that's for sure. It's not the new kid duo either. I look across to Denim, where Duo is pacing back and forth making sure his piles are neat and folded. He's a pretty good kid. Sometimes he'll actually ask to help with shipments. He wears a t-shirt and skinny jeans like most of our customers his age. Angela tells him to watch me, to learn from me. She says he's my heir apparent. I like him, but he's not like me. He can sound honest he knows how to see what people want, but he can't do what I can do. Not on Black Friday. But he'll survive, Denim. Mikkel and Lance cover shoes and graphic tees. Mikkel and Lance might as well be anybody else. Lance is working the broom. There's a grind and a metallic rumble. Angela is in the front. She's pushed the button and turned the key. The main gate eats itself up as it rolls into the ceiling. Get out of here, 
I yell to Richard. He runs to the register, where he'll be back up to the backup safe. Maybe eighty people rush through the gate, clawing and stampeding, pushing racks and bodies aside. Have you ever seen people run from a fire or gunshots? It's like that, with less fear and more hunger. From my cabin I see a child, a girl maybe six years old, disappear as the wave of consumer fervor swallows her up. She is sprawled face down with dirty shoe prints on her pink coat. Lance walks up to the small pink body. He's pulling a pallet jack and holding a huge push broom. He thrusts the broom head into her side and tries to sweep her onto the pallet jack so he can roll her to the section we've designated for bodies. As he touches her, a woman wearing a gray scarf pushes him away and yanks the girl to her feet. I imagine the mother explaining that her tiny daughter isn't dead yet. She pulls the little girl toward me. The girl limps and tries to keep up, and then I have to forget about them. Blue! Sun! Sleek pack! A man with wild eyes and a bubble vest screams as he grabs my left ankle. White foam drips from his mouth. I use my right foot to stomp his hand, and I feel his fingers crush beneath my boots. He howls. Sleek pack! Sun! While licking his injured hand. I look him in his eyes, deep red around his lids, redder at the corners. I understand him perfectly. What he's saying is this. My son loves me most on Christmas. I have him holidays, me and him. Wants the one thing, only thing, his mother won't. On me. Need to feel like father. Ever since that first time, since the bite, I can speak Black Friday. Or I can understand it, at least. Not fluently, but well enough. I have some of them in me. I hear the people, the sizes, the model, the make, and the reason. Even if all they're doing is foaming at the mouth. I use my reach and pull a medium-sized blue sleek-pack pole face, trademark, from a face-out rack, way up on the wall. Thanks, he growls when I throw the jacket in his face. I jump down from the cabin and swing the reach around so none of them can get too close. The long rod whistles in the air. Most of the customers can't speak in real words. The Friday black has already taken most of their minds. Still, so many of them are the same. I grab two medium fleeces without anyone asking for them because I know somebody wants one. The howl and scream. Daughter, son, girlfriend, husband, friend. Me, daughter, son. I throw one of the fleeces toward the registers and one toward the back wall. The crowd splits. Near the registers, a woman in her thirties takes off her heel and smashes a child in the jaw with it just before he can grab the fleece. She inspects the tag, sees it's a medium, then throws it down on top of the boy with a heel-sized hole in his cheek. I toss two large fleeces and two medium fleeces into the crowds. Then I deal with the customers who can still speak, who are nudging and pushing around me. C-coal. Bubble. Small. Me. Coal. A man says while beating his chest.
I'm the only one at work who doesn't have a Kohlmeister. How can I be a senior advisor without? The only one. I pressed the end of my reach against his neck to keep his hungry mouth from me. Then without taking my eyes off him, I grab one of the Kohlmeister bubble coats from the rack behind me. And then it's in his hands. He hugs the coat and runs to the register. Us! Us! The woman with the gray scarf says. She has large gold earrings hanging off the sides of her head. The pink coat child is at her shins. The child's face is bruised, but she isn't crying at all. Can't. The sty, Grayscarf's husband says. Family time needs forty-two inch high def. The buy-sty deal is only while supplies last. Can't afford any other day. Black Friday takes everybody differently. It's rough on families. They can't always hear what I hear. Asshole! The wife seethes. Then she stares back at me. Pole face, trademark, pink, she says, pointing to her child. Cole sleek pack, she continues, pointing to her own face. A new kitty pole face, trademark. A new coal sleek pack, a coalmeister. A family set. The woman has both the coat she needs in a second, then storms off, dragging her child behind her. It isn't always like this. This is the black weekend. Other times, if somebody dies, at least a cleanup crew comes with a tarp. Last year, the Friday black took 129 people. Black Friday is a special case. We are still a hub of customer care and interpersonal cohesiveness, mall management said in a mall-wide memo. As if caring about people is something you can turn on and off. In the first five hours I do 7,000 plus. No one has ever sold like that before. Soon I'll have a $500 jacket as proof to my mother that I'll love her forever. When I imagine how her face will look as I give it to her, my heart beats faster. At five in the morning, the lull comes. The first wave of shoppers is home, or sleeping, or dead in various corners of the mall. Our store has three bodies in the body section. The first came an hour in. A woman climbed the denim wall, looking for a second pair her size. She was screaming and rocking the wooden cubby wall so hard that the whole thing almost fell on Duo and everybody in his section. Duo poked her off the wall with his reach. She fell on her neck. Another woman snatched the skinny stretches from her dead hands. Lance came with the pallet jack, his broom, and some paper towels. My first break is at 5.30 a.m. On my way to clock out, I walk through Denim. Looks like you've had it pretty crazy, I say to Duo. There are jeans everywhere. None of them folded. Bloodstains all over the floor. Yeah, he says. A young man in a white T-shirt staggers toward us. Grrr, he says. He's gnawing on something. I move to sling him one of the slim straights in his size. He thinks it'll make him popular at school. But stop because of how quickly Duo tosses the right kind of jeans to the customer who takes them and limps to the register. You understand them? I ask. Now I do, Duo says. He kicks at a tooth that's lying on the ground. 
Then he shows me a small bloody mark in the space between his thumb and forefinger. That's Black Friday. This is my first. Well, the worst part is done, I say, kind of smiling, trying to see where he's at. I don't know, he says. Yeah, I say, and continue on toward the register. My break is after yours, Duo says. That's retail for hurry up, I'm hungry. I punch my username and password into the computer, and Richard bows down to me like I'm to be worshipped. Angela nods at me like a proud mama. While I'm gone, Angela will take my spot in the pole face trademark section. It's the lull so she can handle it. Outside the store, the prominent is bloody and broken, so I can tell it's been a great Black Friday. There are people strung out over benches and feet poking out of trash bins. Christmas music you can't escape plays from speakers you cannot see. Christmas is God here. I'm hungry. My family didn't really do the Thanksgiving thing this year, which felt like a relief except I missed my chance for stuffing. I'd offered to help with some of the shopping. My mom had lost her job. I make $8.50 an hour, but I saved. Mom, Dad, Sister, me. But then we skipped the whole thing because we don't really like one another anymore. That was one of the side effects of lean living. We used to play games together. Now my parents yell about money. And when they aren't doing that, we are quiet. I walk wondering if there's stuffing anywhere in the mall. My second Black Friday, our store was doing pretty well, so there was a commission. You got something like 2.5% of all your sales. It was a big deal for us on the floor. That was when Wendy was sales lead, which meant she had the highest sales goals. That year she'd brought in a pie for everybody. I made sure not to eat any of it, because I don't eat anything anybody tries to shove down my throat, and she couldn't stop talking about the pie. We can have Thanksgiving in the store. It's homemade. Everybody was saying how nice she was, how thoughtful. Then Wendy and I were the only ones who didn't have the shits all day. Who knows what she put in the pie? I made it my mission to beat her. And I did. I squashed her. Maybe it was because, thanks to her biological warfare, I had shoes, graphic tees, hats, plus denim to cover, while she was stuck in pole face, trademark. Maybe it was because winter was warm that year. Maybe it was that I'm the greatest goddamn salesman this store has ever seen and ever will see. But I squashed her. I've been lead ever since. Wendy was gone by New Year's. I put the extra commission money towards some controllers for my game box. I make it to the food court where the smell of food wafts over the stench of the freshly deceased like a muzzle on a rabid dog. There were survivors... Champions of the first wave pulling bags stretched to their capacity, using the last of their energy to haul their newly purchased happiness home. And there were the dead, everywhere. I get two-dollar menu burgers, a small fry, and a drink from Burgerland. The man at the cash register had seen so much and had so much caffeine that I have to remind him to take money from me. Even as he takes it, he stares forward past me, 
looking at nothing. I sit at one of the white tables in the food court that doesn't have a corpse on it. I bite into my burger and chew slowly. If I hold a bite in my mouth long enough, it softens into something that feels almost like stuffing. While I eat, a woman drags a television in a box to the table in front of me. She pushes a woman who is lying face down in a small puddle of red blood out of the chair. Then she sits down. I recognize her from the store. One of her ears looks like it's been mangled by teeth. The other still has a large gold earring. Her gray scarf is gone. But she's wearing her new coat. When I look at her, she hisses and shows her pointy white teeth. It's okay, I say. I helped you. She looks at me confused. Um, sleek pack? Cole? I say in Black Friday, pointing to myself, then back to her. The creases on her face smooth. She relaxes into her seat and rubs her cheek into the faux fur of the hood. Good haul? I ask. She nods hard and pets the face of the television box. Family still shopping? I ask. The woman dips her pointer finger into the blood puddle in front of her. Forty-two inches high def, she says. This is the only time they can afford it. With her red finger, she makes a small circle, then points two small eyes onto the cardboard box and drags a smile beneath the eyes. The blood dries out before she gets all the way across the face. What? I ask. Dead, she says. By sty, trample. Oh, I say. Right. She was weak. He was weak. I am strong, the woman says as she pets the face on the box. It hardly smears at all. Weak, she repeats. Got it, I say. I finish one burger, then I toss the second to the woman. She catches it, tears the paper away, and eats gleefully. My phone moves in my pocket, and I grab it. I still have fifteen minutes, but it's the store. We need you, Richard screams. I just left, I say getting up and starting to walk. Duo just quit. Oh, he said he needed to go on break, and I said, wait a few minutes, and then he just left. He's gone. I'm coming, I say. I get up, walk toward the escalator. I step to the conveyor and float down. Coming up on the opposite escalator is Duo. Hungry, I say. I couldn't do it, man. That shit is sad, Duo says. I grunt something because I don't have the words to tell him that it is sad, but it's all I have. It's a nice coat, he says, but that's it. What? The coat isn't proof. She knows. You don't need to, bro, he says, turning around and rising up the escalator. Don't do that. I say, not to me. Sorry. Yeah, I say, and then Duo flies away. 
My third Black Friday, the company wasn't doing great. There was no commission and no prize. I still outsold everybody. Back in the store, there's a new body in the body pile. And in Poleface, trademark, a young woman is trying to kill Angela. She's clawing and screaming. And even from the store entrance, I know what she wants. Angela is pinned against the wall where the super shells are. It looks like the girl is about to bite Angela's nose off. Lance is rolling a teen toward the body pile, and Mikkel is helping a customer in the shoe section. Richard looks at me and points to Angela and the girl. I know what the girl wants. Help! Angela yells, turning to look at me. She has a reach between her and the girl, but she won't last much longer. I turn and go to the back room. I look up at the only large super shell parka hanging there. I pull it off the hanger. I go outside and the girl can smell it. She looks in my direction and howls like a wolf. I won't be alone with this, she's saying. They'll like me now. She rushes toward me. I dangle the coat out to the side like a matador. She runs toward it and I let go and leap out of the way as she comes crashing through the parka. Then with the coat in her hand, she says, Thank you, in a raspy voice. I watch her at the register. Have a nice day, Richard says as he rings her up. She growls and says, You too. I punch back in at the computer. Angela puts a hand on my shoulder. Thanks, she says. Yep, I say. And then I go back to my section. A herd of shoppers stops in front of the store. They see the pole face, trademark, we have left. I climb on top of my cabin. The people stampede. Some bodies fall and get up. Some bodies fall and stay down. They scream and hiss and claw and moan. I grab my reach and watch the blood-messed humans with money in their wallets and the Friday black in their brains run toward me. I smile out at the crowd. How can I help you today? They push and point in all directions. The Lion and the Spider He yelled and jumped at us, making the long fingers of his left hand lion claws that viciously tickled our ribs. One, two, three rabbit children all swallowed up in one bite, my father roared. We jumped and laughed and screamed. He shook the bed we, the children, shared. But watching way up above us was another character who hid in the fist of his right hand, which opened slowly. Anansi, the spider, appeared before us. You silly cat, Anansi said before scurrying to the woods. Across the mattress and our heads, his tiny legs, quick-moving fingers. He disappeared into the bush, searching for something special. Graduation was two weeks away. My father, gone for months. The day he'd left, my father had said, I have some business I need to see to. 
And you're leaving today, I'd said as evenly as possible. I had become a devotee to a religion of my own creation. Its most integral ritual was maintaining a precise calm, especially when angry, when hurt, when terrified. People like my father, who yelled freely in English and Chui, whenever things were bad, were heretics to be ignored or hated. Yes, flying out later. I'll be back in two weeks. Your mother is doing fine. The doctor says she's all right. You're in charge for now. Make sure your sister keeps up with her studies. He'd handed me forty dollars. This was the first I'd heard of the trip. He would fly across an ocean to the country where both he and my mother were born and raised. Be back soon, he'd said that afternoon as he got into the cab. Okay, I'll see you later, I guess. When he first left, I'd gone to my mother. She'd been quiet and reserved. She'd been sick for a long time by then. Unable to work, she spent most of her days in our house. Then foreclosure swept us up. And she spent most of her days in the apartment we'd rented my senior year. He'll be back soon, she said. Her calm hurt and impressed me. Now, after months without, I decided that he wasn't coming back and was settling into life at the home improvement store. I spent five to eleven six days a week digging away at the guts of dusty cavernous shipment trucks. My title was Unload Specialist. There were three of us. If our adventures unpacking the truck were made into a movie, Cato, who was only a few years older than I was, would have been the strapping young hero, the one you looked to in times of crisis. The other guy, Reese, was probably the same age as my father. He would be the wily old adventurer on his last legs, on the brink of giving up, a few missed cigarettes from a breakdown but persisting because his experience in the field made him one of a kind, because he was the only one of us who knew how to use the forklift, and because maybe he hadn't quite found his treasure yet. My role, I knew, was the guy who would lose an arm in the second half of the film, maybe saving one of the other two. Or one of the real stars would get hurt saving me, which would set me up to lead in the sequel. We were the unload team, not unlike the Justice League or the Avengers, the specialists. Before every shift we tossed on red and blue vests and were transformed. They were thin nylon, weightless, but still annoying. Reese wore a company-issued back supporter. Cato wore one of the company hats turned backward. I didn't have any special thing, but not having a thing when the other two did was kind of like having a thing in its own way. To start a shift, Carter, the overnight manager, would give us something like a pep talk as our cave of untreasures backed into the receiving bay. Beep! We've got two big ones coming. Beep! But I know we can bust these things down. Beep! All the pallets are out, and there's a forklift ready. Beep! Let's get it! Beep! Let's fucking go! 
There was a thunderous cough when the mouths of the Goliath-white trailers kissed the opening of the bay. We spent most of our time in that receiving bay, a huge concrete space with three giant garage doors. Reese would bring a bolt cutter to the lock that kept the trailer's door closed. We made a little ceremony of it. Reese's veins would puff from his neck as he squeezed the cutter's arms together. We cheered when the metal snapped. Once the bolt was cut, Cato and I would pull the door and slide it open with a careful push. Sometimes an avalanche of tile sets or caulking material or whatever would fall out. We used wood pallets to group things together. We had a system. Have gloves on whenever you're back here, Reese had said early on. We used gloves with red wax on the fingers, but I still pulled splinters out of my palms almost daily. Lion was very pleased with himself. His belly was full. At that, my father put air in his stomach and rubbed it to remind us what a full belly looked like. It is a shame, though, Lion said, while rubbing his belly. I was in such a rush to eat. I didn't even get to taste the rabbit children. Lion fell asleep happily in a tree. In his sleep he dreamed of how shocked Rabbit Mother would be when she saw that her family had disappeared. Lion smiled as he thought of the trickster, Anansi, who would have no time to plan some foolishness to keep him from the magic potion he'd promised if Lion was able to beat him in a race to the mountaintop. For the specialists, the truck trailers were villain, purpose, and home. Between eight and nine, we'd get to the heavy stuff, the big appliances. We'd use hand trucks and pallet jacks. Sometimes Reese had to drive one of the forklifts into the truck. A fully pre-assembled workbench moves about as easily as an elephant, but dryers are lighter than you would expect. One time Cato went for a tower of two stacked washing machines, held together by a web of translucent blue plastic, wrapped around the middle of their two cardboard boxes. Hercules! He called out to us as he slid the lip of his hand truck underneath the cardboard. He kicked it farther in, then pulled back. That was his catchphrase. He'd say, Hercules! when he was showing off, soloing stuff that probably needed more than one person. Hercules! I called back in support as I pulled a dryer onto a pallet jack. I was the sidekick, and proud of it. Cato made a sound like a piece of food was caught in his throat. By the time I looked up, the two washing machines were teetering, then tackling down. I made a lunge in his direction, but the crash came first. I yelled. Reese dragged as I pushed the washing machines off Cato. Our fear made us strong, and we tossed the heavy boxes aside quickly, but carefully enough not to damage anything, because whenever there were damages to the big machines, the loss prevention guy tried to chop our heads off. Cato groaned beneath the boxes. I wasn't sure how he'd be when we got them off him. We moved the washing machines and looked at him. His back on the dusty truck floor, the hand truck above him. I'm good, 
he said. The hand truck, as our safety tutorials had explained, had rods on either side that kept you from getting all the way crushed should a load ever be too heavy. He'd been pinned down, bruised up maybe, but he was fine. Hercules, he mumbled, laughing off his embarrassment as me and Reese helped him up. Hercules, Reese said back. I didn't have any brothers, but Cato was exactly what I imagined having one would be like. In high school, when Cato was a senior and I was a sophomore, he'd been one of the kinder gods of the school. He had been the second fastest in the state, in the 200 meters, and that meant he didn't really have to be nice to anybody. He'd torn his MCL near the end of his senior year, and it had been a tragedy for our school. The colleges that had shown interest in him snatched their offers back. And here he was still. We took our breaks at the same time, and when he had his mother's car, he'd drive me home so I wouldn't have to walk. I'd helped him create a comprehensive list, ranking all the women in each of the store's departments based on a complicated attractiveness matrix. Later, in response to our list, two cashiers made a list ranking all the guys. Cato, of course, was ranked number one. I'd ranked twelfth, which felt like an accomplishment. It was a big department store. Sometimes when we had lunch, Cato would get serious and say something like, You gotta get out of here, man. Don't get stuck. I wanted to quit more than I wanted anything else the day Cato got pinned by the washing machines. If I'd known where my father was, if I didn't need every cent of the ten dollars and ten cents per hour I was making, I would have. I had to stay. The trucks became night, and dreading the trucks became the day. I went from school to the trucks and from the trucks to sleep. I hardly saw my sister or my mother. I avoided them. When I did see my sister, I tried to be fatherly. How was school today? I'd ask. You were there, she'd reply. She was only a few years younger. She did me the mercy of pretending everything was normal. We were good at that. Acting. Ignoring our own disintegrating. In the foam bed on the floor, I'd whined and tried not to cry. No! He didn't eat Mother Rabbit's children. It's not fair. I couldn't accept it. The stories my father told us had great power. I made sure to let my outrage sing whenever they veered from the path I believed was best. Not to mention that Mother Rabbit's children happened to have the same names as my sister, my mother, and I did. All his stories found a way to make stars of us. My father shushed me. Just... Listen to the story, he said. My collegiate ascent was a topic in the shipment bay. The guys cheered me on. They joked that I shouldn't forget them when I was a nuclear physicist or the president or a veterinarian. I didn't tell them that the entire process had been halted by my father's disappearance. If he didn't return, I would remain and work up to a managerial spot. I'd become someone like Carter, 
a fate that filled me with an anguish that felt like lead in my stomach. So far as they knew, I was deciding between a school upstate, a school in the city, and another one in Connecticut. Well, you trust me, Reese said to me one day while I was helping him lay bags of enriched soil out on a pallet. They're going to be begging you to fuck them wherever you go. Then he smiled the way he did whenever he said something inappropriate, showing his cigarette-stained top teeth. Reese had long, skinny arms, and he always smelled like cigarette smoke. Often, he'd suck on his cheeks and move his mouth like something was stuck to his gums. I didn't know anyone else like him. I would have liked to make him proud. Even though when I'd first started, Cato had put it in my head that Reese was some kind of racist. He said something about niggas, man, Cato had told me, my third week working in the store. I heard it. Hard ER at the end of it, too. I'm 98% sure. He didn't see me. He was on the phone. I think he was talking to his wife or something. I didn't like to disagree with Cato if I could avoid it, but I told him that I didn't think Reese was like that. I like to think that if he was a racist, because of me and Cato, at some point, he'd gone home to his wife and while they were at dinner or just sitting in front of the TV, he'd have something on the tip of his tongue. He'd be fidgety, almost nervous, and eventually he'd say something like, Did you know that I work with two niggers? His wife, who was also probably racist, would look up at him, waiting for a point and after sliding some peas back and forth a few times on his plate, Reese would finish his thought. They're not so bad. And he'd say it in a way that wouldn't mean that black people were generally okay. That would be too embarrassing for him to admit at almost fifty-two or however old he was. He'd mean it like, we, specifically us too, were okay even though somewhere by extension he'd feel that maybe... He'd been wrong about black people his whole life. Ah, lion, I was beginning to think you had run off into the night. Anansi said the morning of their big race. When he was Anansi, my father's voice was wise and small. Are you ready to run for the lives of the rabbit family? Remember, you have agreed that if I make it to the top of the highest of the Togo Mountains, you will cut off your own tail and leave the rabbit family alone for good. Since the night before, Lion's belly had pained him terribly. My father held his stomach and groaned. Lion could feel the three rabbit children in his stomach. They were much heavier than Lion had anticipated. The middle of the truck always felt endless. There'd be boxes of stuff packed so tightly that they'd cram up against the ceiling. Pulling the wrong thing made the towers fall. To make things easier, I played little games in my head, like I imagined that if we worked fast enough, at the back of the truck, behind that final wall of washing machines and fridges, there would be something amazing. A bag of money, a baby, gold, anything— I'd choose something specific, though. If it was a baby, it'd be a lost child with a name. Christy. 
We'd only know this because of the note left behind with her. I'd pull away a whirlpool, and there she would be, little baby Christy, a note tucked into the folds of the soft blanket she was wrapped in. Please take care. I know you are better suited than I am. Please love her. I love her. I love you, Christy. Goodbye. I love you. The baby in the note would obviously be a shocking discovery even for the specialists, and for like five minutes we wouldn't know what to do. We'd take turns holding the baby, then almost sadly we'd call a manager, and he'd call the police. Of course we'd stop working for the day. For years following, me, Cato, and Reese would all keep track of Christy. We'd be secret faraway fathers, sending her anonymous little treasures and she'd be known locally by some kind of nickname that fused baby words and home improvement stuff. Toolborn Tyke, or whatever. But when we got to the very end, all that work ended in a tall slab of nothing. Always. On your mark! Set! Go! Monkey called out from a tree. Lion leaped forward toward the base of the mountain to begin his climb. Lion looked back to Anansi, who was already far behind him. When my father became Lion, he made his voice big and mean. You've grown foolish, spider, Lion said as he began to climb the great mountain. I am the fastest in the jungle. He thought, I have already eaten the rabbit children, and now I will win this race, and you will have to give me your magic potion. Far behind Lion, Anansi walked through the land slowly. His head was down, as though he were not interested in the mountain at all. Ah, Anansi! Why don't you run? Oh! Monkey asked. Do you not want to save these poor rabbit children? I have already saved the children, brother. Now I will embarrass this silly cat, Anansi said. Oh, Anansi! Lion is already at the mountain. If you do not run now, you will surely lose. You will see, Anansi said. You will see. Years earlier, when we'd had the house, my father had agreed to take my neighbor Jerry and me to the movies. We'd looked forward to it all week. My father told us we'd be leaving at 7 p.m. to catch the 7.30 show. The day of... My father's car pulled into the driveway around 6.55. Jerry and I were in the middle of a third round of mashing our controllers. A Japanese martial artist kicked a mutant in the face. Your father's outside, my mother called. His horn honked once, a long, hard blow that almost carried my father's voice on it. I felt him sitting in the car, waiting. We stopped the game and hurtled down the stairs. When we got outside, the slivers of green grass poking through the brakes in the driveway looked homeless compared to the fullness of the lawn. Jerry looked at me confused. He forgot us? I walked up to the mailbox. My father's taillights were still climbing away up our street. I started waving my arms wildly, running hard up the hill. I wanted it to seem like a joke. Jerry ran with me. I was screaming, Dad! Dad, we're here! 
We're here! Jerry screamed, Hey! Hey! The whole time we scrambled, our arms waving like the blow-up thing outside the Nissan dealership. Dad! Dad! I called. He slowed down for oncoming traffic, then turned and sped off onto Route 42. We walked back sweaty and dazed. The fun of our game chasing the car was lost. Jerry said that maybe it was a joke, and that we should wait for him to turn around. I said, maybe. We looked to my mother for answers. She poured juice. She watched us drink quietly. After he drank his, Jerry went home. When Jerry was gone, I said, Why would he just leave us? It was a minute. It is just a movie. It will be there, she said. But why did he leave us? We were right there. Be patient with him. He is not patient, so you must be patient, she said. It isn't fair, I said slowly explaining facts. It will be there. He wants to do things his way. He'll take you later, she said. I was disappointed, because I thought it was obvious that I'd never want to go with him anywhere ever again. Mother Earth! Mother Earth! Anansi called out. Mother Earth! The Earth shook as did the foam mattress when my father pulled and pushed it quickly. Anansi! You have called my name, Mother Earth called back to Anansi, her voice in the wind in the trees. Beautiful Mother Earth, I have a small request to make of you. You ask before you give, Anansi? The Earth trembled. Monkey fell out of his tree. No, never, great mother. I give in promises and work before I ask. Anansi spoke and bowed his head to the ground. What have you given? Mother Earth asked. I have planted these seeds to you and promise they will add to your beauty, Anansi said without bringing his gaze up from the ground. I have seen the work you have done. What is it you request? I only ask for a small breeze, a kind wind down this path and up the great mountain, Anansi said. My son's getting ready to graduate, too, Reese said to me one day in the truck. I grabbed two boxes of Beware of the Dog and Stay Off the Grass signs. What's his name? I asked. He's a junior. Reese Jr., we call him R.J. Cool, I said. Where is he thinking of going? I had never heard of Reese's son before. Probably he'll do a year or two at the community college. Then we'll see from there, Reese said. I might do that too, I said. Most people I knew had already committed to glimmering universities. I told the school upstate, the school in Connecticut, and the school in the city— I'd see them in the fall, and that they should expect my initial deposit soon. Nah, you won't, Reese said. He was encouraging me. He was sure of my future in a way I was not.
with a small blade of grass in his hands. Anansi felt the great push of Mother Earth. Her hand carried him down the path and up the great mountain. Lion struggled only a few feet from the bottom. Anansi screamed from the top of the winds. You've got rocks in your belly, you silly cat. I knew you would do evil, so I put rocks in the rabbit children's bed. Lion roared and tried to swipe Anansi as he rode his blade of grass up the great mountain. He could not. On the mountaintop, Anansi laughed and laughed. He reappeared a week before graduation. Three and a half months later than expected. Three months without any contact at all. I was with Reese. That day there was no truck, so they put us in the paint section to support. I saw him before he saw me. I hoped I looked as different as I felt. I felt strong. He noticed me. I felt headless. He waved wildly. He started walking faster as if he'd just realized he was late. He wore his jean shorts and his leather sandals. He called my name twice even though it was clear I'd already seen him. He reached me. He put a hand on my shoulder. Dad, I said. I thought, there's food in the fridge because of me. I went to prom. I imagine you gone forever, and I survived. I thought, thank you. I don't know why. Reese looked up from the cans he was arranging. Is this your dad here? He said, taking off a glove and offering his hand. You've got a fine son. My father took it and said in a friendly laugh, Yes, he's a big man. He turned his attention to me. Reese walked away from us to the other side of the long aisle near different shades of tan and green. I just got in. Is this your job, waiting around with paint? He laughed. I don't want to keep you from your working. He patted me on the shoulder again. Dead, I said, not wanting to be calm, but not knowing how to do anything but breathe. I'll be waiting in the lot. You need a ride, right? I said, yes, I do. Light Spitter He wants them to know they made him this way. So he twists a thumb of red from the tube and draws a large F on his forehead. It takes him too long to realize he's placed it backward. Dang it, he says to himself. But he doesn't wash it away and start over. He's past the point of mistakes. He doesn't make mistakes anymore. They were wrong about him. They were for so many years. They were. He sees that clearly now. He is not, has never been, and he never will be wrong. He completes his title, being careful to draw the red onto his forehead in bold letters they won't be able to forget. The name they gave him, Fuckton, in lipstick. Even with a backward F, it's glorious. He grabs his gear, then heads out to find his destiny. Safe in her home, Melanie Hayes says, Love you, sweetie. Keep at it, all right. 
We want a better semester, right? She can imagine her daughter's eyes rolling, but figures the nudge is worth it. She's a good student, her daughter, but she's human, and sometimes she gets distracted. They both get distracted, but they've always been a good team. The two of them, now that her husband had opted out of their lives, would have to be especially good together. Love you, she says again to her college girl. That's what she wants to leave on. It's still early in the semester. She smiles to herself as she listens to her daughter's voice, which sounds annoyed but also soft in that way that Deirdre is. Fuckton grabs Blunt Nose, his green comb, and slides a pale finger across its teeth. His hands tremble. He closes his eyes so he can properly appreciate the small plink of the teeth bending, then snapping back into place. He brings the comb to his head. Yes, each strand of hair will shine, slick and erect. The mane of a battle-ready soldier. Oh, he will look good for the annihilation. For this momentous occasion, he is even wearing his contacts. Contacts that almost beefed the whole morning because he'd brushed his teeth before donning them, getting some paste on his fingers, causing his left eye to feel a flame for several minutes. But no matter. Minor mishap. The apocalypse wanes not to Colgate. A red eye is of little consequence. How many more red eyes? How many great tears will they weep? Ten, twenty, hundreds for each of his. Fuckton pulls Blunt Nose through his hair once more. It kisses his scalp so gently. How he will shine on this day of bright retribution. He lives on the campus and still no friends. He tried the ensemble choir mixer. Still no friends. He tried chess club, had handily vanquished the club treasurer. Still no friends. He tried to charm the campus Democrats at a canvassing meeting and watched a gaggle of liberals as they giggled and guffawed and very clearly texted one another about him, calling him a dotard of some kind, no doubt. After he'd summoned a tremendous courage and got up and said his piece on the merits of conservative fiscal attitudes. When he'd ventured to the campus Republicans during their free-to-hate rally, he had been promptly squirted with water guns they'd had for some reason because apparently they'd gotten wind that he'd been consorting with the Democrats and thought him a spy of some kind. Either way, no friends, some enemies even. But it's always been like this, his whole life. And yet, that's what makes what's to come so much easier. He walks into the warm day feeling as a giant might before it crushes peasants underfoot. At the library door, he watches a young woman walk out. She pauses, holds the door for a moment, and when Fuckton stares at her, smiling, she looks at him in a bored, searching way. Hi, Fuckton says. She says nothing in response. Crinkles on her nose show that she's annoyed he's even tried to speak to her. The insolence is welcomed. Fuckton walks in giddy with the power in his hands, the plain sight secret of it. How on the other side of the next few moments, he will be everything he's always deserved. From across the library's first floor, 
Fuckton sees a girl holding her place in a closed book with her thumb. She has a phone to her ear, hair wrapped neatly in a scarf, smiling. She's the one. Easy, lady, I just got here. Don't worry, she whispers, then hangs up. She needs to focus. It's the first week of her junior year at Ridgemore University, and she's in the library. She's there because this year, she's finally being honest with herself. She doesn't get any reading done in bed. Ten, maybe twenty pages, and she knocks out. Sleep. Then she'll wake up two hours later and be disappointed in herself and hungry. A dangerous combination as the first seems to enhance the second. And there are still people who say things like, Wow, Deirdre, you look so good. I hardly recognized you. Even though all the weight she'd lost recently was weight she'd gained freshman year, so it never really feels like a compliment exactly. But last semester, after falling asleep in bed, instead of getting back to the book when she'd wake up, she'd call Terry, and the two of them would go to the dining hall to eat and chat, which would mostly be Terry explaining his boy trouble as she gave him advice he'd later regret ignoring. She's good for that. Advice. She doesn't mind listening. She's straightforward, even blunt. People appreciate it in the long run. After eating her dining hall salad, she'd be tired again and cuddle into her bed to watch something simple and funny on her laptop. Or, if she was lucky, she'd feel guilty for the second dinner and head to the gym. Either way, she wouldn't go back to reading which she needed to do if she was going to get an A in her contemporary lit class and all but guarantee a spot on the dean's list. A nice gift to her mother, who desperately needed and deserved something nice, considering what happened with Dad and how badly Deirdre did last semester. A voice she doesn't know says something. She is half annoyed and half relieved when she is yet again forced to look up from her book. Deirdre just barely lets out an, oh, and then she is dead. There's a shriek, and Fuckton looks around and sees people sprinting away from him. Sorry, Fuckton says before he can stop himself. A ridiculous thing to say, he knows. He stares at the dead girl, the one he himself with the help of a gray-black pistol nicknamed Whiptail, just banished from the earth. He waits for the glory to fill him. Eyes wide, he absorbs the body in front of him more intimately. The face is so broken, it terrifies him. There's blood everywhere, on his lips, in his hair. He looks at her one more time, then fucked in turns and runs. He trips on a rug edge and falls on his knees. Whiptail blasts a shot off into the floor. The boom scares Fuckton just as much as it scares all the running, screaming people. So much running and screaming. Fuckton gets up and sprints into the bathroom. Inside, there's a boy washing his hands. Uh, Fuckton says, and points Whiptail at the boy. The boy turns then flinches and crumples to the tile floor, as if someone just ripped his spine from his body. He's pleading. 
Fuckton pardons the boy by going into the stall without blowing his head off, like he did to the girl outside. That really happened. Fuckton's body is shaking. He wants to disappear. From inside the stall, which Fuckton promptly locks shut, he hears the boy get up and run out of the bathroom. Fuckton grabs blunt nose from his pocket and tries to slide the comb through his hair. Dang, dang, dang! Fuckton screams. He wipes his forehead and barely registers that a red, waxy residue sticks to his fingers. His hands won't stop shaking. Above him, an angel wrought from the soul of Deirdre Hayes watches him closely. There is another bang. Fuckton the killer drops in the bathroom stall. The angel smiles, and two black horns scrape out of her head, and then she leaves the bathroom. The ghost of Fuckton walks from the bathroom, drawn to the angel floating over her former body, which is limp and bent over the back of a cushy chair. Deirdre and Fuckton see each other. What happened? Fuckton asks. Deirdre turns her head and tries to spit on Fuckton. But all that comes from her mouth are slim rays of light. After trying and failing to do anything but shine, she says, You killed her. Me. You killed me. Fuckton stares at the angel. She looks just like the dead girl on the chair used to. Then he looks at the body. Oh, yeah. That feels like it was ages ago. My bad, Fuckton says. I'm still bleeding, Deirdre says, pointing to the rush pouring from her body's face. People have cleared out around them, and though Deirdre and Fuckton are there in the library, they both know and feel they've been untethered from time and any particular space. What about me? Fuckton asks. You shot yourself. Did people see it? Nah, but I did. It was the first thing I saw like this. Deirdre gestures toward herself and her new wings. I could have helped you, but I didn't. I watched you do it. I let you. Deirdre's wings are small and shiny. They flap slowly, gathering and stretching like a jellyfish. The horns on her head are long black, and sharp. So what now? Fuckton asks. I'm an angel now. What am I? I think you're kind of nothing, Deirdre says. You don't get to be anything special. Nothing? Asks Fuckton. Yeah, nothing. Look, Deirdre says. She points to Fuckton's chest where an empty space the size of a fist pulses in his ghost body. Whoa, Fuckton says. He puts a hand in his chest and touches the rim of the empty space. Kinda like Iron Man. No, not like Iron Man. That means pretty soon you'll be nothing. How come you know everything? Fuckton asks. When you get like this, it comes with some info. It's flowing into me still. Oh. I guess it's supposed to be fair or something. I can fly now, 
I have wings and stuff. See? You have a nothing. Cause you're nothing. Dang, he says. Maybe I can fly too, though. Fuckton jumps in the air. He kicks his legs back and points his palms to the ground, but falls back to the tiled floor. He lands in the newly formed puddle of Deirdre's blood. He does not disturb the puddle, which grows and grows. Nope, he says. Sucks, Deirdre says, rolling her eyes. Okay, so now what? Why are you asking me? I hate you. You just ruined my everything. Are angels allowed to hate? Asks Fuckton. I guess so, since if I could, I'd bring you back to life just to watch you die over and over. Okay. Fuckton points to Deirdre's head. Angels have horns? Deirdre frowns and brings one of her hands to the horns on her head. She touches one of the horns for a moment, then quickly drops her hand away, as if they burn to touch. It's a style, she says. I had a family, you know. Dreams, too. So did I, says Fuckton. Well, Deirdre shrugs. It sure feels like that was a long time ago, says Fuckton. It wasn't. You're not even all the way dead yet. I'm not? Nah, Deirdre says. For now, you're a cipher. A corrupted one. Like a ghost, but not all the way, I think. You don't know the rules yet? No, not everything. Not yet. It's coming to me slowly, like downloading. But it doesn't matter. You'll be gone soon, and I don't know what will happen to you next. But I hope it's bad. Dang, I beefed it. Fugden reaches into his pocket for his trusty blunt nose. He finds nothing. Then he runs his hand through his greasy hair. It isn't greasy anymore. There is nothing on his forehead. Yeah, you did, Deirdre says. I have to go now. Fuckton looks around. What about me? Don't you get it? I don't know. I don't care. You're nothing. Why do you have to go? I have stuff to do. I can feel it. Can I come with you? Fuckton asks while staring at the body. I never want to see you again. Please? No. Please. I'm hoping you die, Deirdre says, her body beginning to glow. Wait! Fuckton reaches out to grab at her. There's a flash and a shift. Deirdre and Fuckton are in a living room with a green carpet and a brown couch with singe marks on the arms. On the television screen, there's a helicopter view of Ridgemont University. Fuckton is drawn to the television. A news anchor appears on the screen and says, More on the Ridgemore shooting. The shooter has been identified as freshman William Cropper, who is believed to be in custody and in critical condition. Early reports describe him as, quote, an off-putting loner. Right now there is one confirmed casualty. 
the newscaster shakes her head. Then she tosses to Vince Weiss, sports anchor. That's just terrible, terrible, he says. On a lighter note, the Twitawa Typhoons absolutely thrashed the Killiam Hound Dogs in last night's season opener. What? That's it? Fuckton says. He turns to look at Deirdre, then at the television, then back at Deirdre. How are you here? Asks Deirdre. I guess I can follow you. Fuckton opens his fist to show Deirdre that he is holding one of her feathers. It glows in his hand. I'm trying to be nice because I'm transcending, but I really don't fuck with you. Get it? So give me that. Deirdre floats down to take the feather away from him. I'll give it back later. And transcending? Fuckton tightens his fist around the feather and turns his back to the angel. Just die already, Deirdre says, the tips of her horns igniting into fire. She takes a few careful, calm breaths. The flames shrink, then whisper to smoke. Transcending is like a tryout. I'm trying out for a job. No, a position? I guess like a station. I had a choice, and I chose to stay and help. I'd like to stay and help, Fuckton says, standing up, keeping his eyes down. I don't think you get the same choices, Deirdre says. But you aren't sure? No. But can I stay for now? Fuckton looks at her as his hand moves behind his body. Deirdre can see him pinching his upper left arm with his right hand through the hole in his chest. Whatever. Deirdre says. Thanks. I don't know where else to go, says Fuckton. Deirdre stares at him, and as she does, the front door opens. In comes a boy who is just then returning from Wetmoss High School. His name is Porter Lanks. Fuckton immediately recognizes the boy as a fellow member of the bleak black by yourself. Porter's thin body and slight hunchback make him look like a question mark. No matter how he moves or stands, you can't help but notice the pinkness of his elbows, the dirtiness of his sneakers, the blotchiness of his face. His eyes are wide and blue. Porter's mother is home. Hi, honey. School okay today? She asks. She is cooking something but she stops to look closely at her son as he enters the home. It was fine, Mom, Porter says, meeting her eyes just enough. His voice is low and heavy. Mismatched to his body, Porter runs up the stairs into his room. Deirdre follows Porter, and Fuckton follows Deirdre. Porter closes his door, then locks it with a gentle hand. Deirdre and Fuckton slide through the painted wood. Porter takes a pillow from his bed, brings it to his face, and screams into it. Deirdre and Fuckton watch. Fuckton from the ground, Deirdre near the ceiling fan. Porter screams until the sides of his face shade blue. Then, while maintaining a kind of messy silence, he makes as if to tear the pillow in half. He cannot 
so instead he straddles it on the bed and punches it several times. His fists fly awkwardly, chaotically. In a flash, the angel and Fuckton are back at Ridgemore University. In the bathroom, above Fuckton's body, which is limp and pale in the fluorescent light. There's smeared lipstick on his forehead, a hole in his cheek, a gun in his motionless hand. Blunt nose is in the toilet. Paramedics and police surround him. Loose wisps of toilet paper drink the blood on the floor. A man, a woman, and another man look over the body. One of the medics says, Maybe he should die. Dang, Fuckton says, clawing at his scalp with his fingers. You brought us back? Deirdre asks. I told you I have work to do. This doesn't concern me anymore. Why aren't they helping? It's because they know what you are. Deirdre looks at Thuckton, and her horns begin to smolder. I feel like I could almost... Thuckton reaches out to touch one of the medics, and as he does, he disappears into the man's mind. He sees the man's life. He is a saver of the hurt. He sees so much brutality. Every day is brutal. Once, he saved a man who later killed himself and his entire family. He is repulsed by Fuckton. But still, he is a saver of life. A moment passes, then Fuckton reappears. I was in his head, Fuckton says. I was in his head. I think. Maybe I almost made him help me. Nobody wants to help you, Deirdre says. You don't deserve it. And you didn't do anything but make yourself into more nothing. Deirdre points to the hole in Fuckton's chest that is now the size of a watermelon. She laughs. Her horns erupt into flame again. She stops laughing and closes her eyes. There's a burst of light. Back in Porter's room, Deirdre's horns glow like hot steel, then slowly cool to black. Dang, Fuckton says. He sits cross-legged on a rug. He traces small circles in the ground using Deirdre's feather. Deirdre floats back and forth above. Porter is on the computer muttering to himself. I guess a lot of people are pretty scared, Fuckton says. Of course, somebody killed somebody, Deirdre says. You mean I killed you? Deirdre stares at Fuckton as he continues. People called me Fuckton for a long time. Fuckton the blimp, Fuckton the hippo, Fuckton the Fuckton. Every day for a long time. So? I'm just saying I'm remembering some stuff, even after I lost the weight. My name's Billy, but I remember Fuckton more than I remember anything else. Sometimes I got bullied, too. I figured it out, though, Deirdre says. I think, being this way, I'm forgetting some of it. I can't remember everything, but I know I never killed anybody, and I know I hate you. Yeah, 
Fuckton says. Yup. I guess you didn't really have anything to do with it. It would have been better to get someone I actually knew. Porter slams his fist on the top of his desk. They noticed him today, Fuckton says quietly. Who? Them. Everybody. He hates them. They never give him one single freaking break. Deirdre floats down and looks past Porter to the computer screen. He's reading about you now, she says. There's a long block of transcribed text on the computer screen. Fuckton's picture is at the top with the caption that says, William Cropper, 18. Fuckton moves to see it. After a few seconds of reading along with Porter, he turns away from the screen. Yeah, it's me. I guess I'm, like, really famous. Not really, but whatever. I'm gonna do my job. I'm gonna help him to not be like you. You can do that? I'm gonna try. Okay. What should I do? It doesn't matter. I don't care. Fuckton looks down at the carpet. He slides his hand through his hair. Deirdre closes her eyes and reaches out. Then she disappears into Porter. Fuckton paces back and forth. He touches the feather in his hand to the rim of the massive hole in his chest. Then he lies down on Porter's bed, clutching the feather. He closes his eyes. When he does, he sees himself crying. That, he remembers, was truly a long time ago. The day he got his gun, Fuckton stopped crying. Instead of crying, he put names on a list and imagined. Porter cries no tears. Are you gonna martyr like me? Fuckton asks while looking at Porter. Are you gonna do it? Porter stares at the screen. Then he crashes his fist onto the desk again. Deirdre tumbles back from nowhere onto the floor. Damn it! Deirdre says. Her horns glow hot and her wings flap erratically. What happened? I might have made it worse. Her wings move faster, fluttering behind her. I pushed up good things. I showed him how happy he used to be, how happy other people are. Why would you do that? Fuckton asks. Porter gets up from the desk and goes into the closet. He digs precisely through some things and pulls out a black handgun. A cig, Fuckton says. No, I thought reminding him might help. That makes it worse. You're not super good at this. Deirdre stares at Fuckton. I didn't know. Porter looks at the gun in his hands. He cradles it in his palms. Then he grips it and points it at Fuckton, the wall behind him, then at his computer. A warm smile pulls his lips apart. The Order of the Stingray, Guardians of a Great Truth, Porter says to himself. That's one of my lines, from my note, Fuckton says, jumping up. He moves close to Porter. It's a call for the people like us, 
to remind the rest of the world that people like us deserve to have what they have. We deserve to have more. Okay, I'm sorry your life was that way, but be quiet now, Deirdre says. I'm saying I understand him. I used to kind of have this imaginary friend. Fuckton squints as though he is trying to concentrate. What? I had this imaginary friend, and he was, like, messed up. More messed up than I was. He had no arms, and he also had, like, Tourette's, so he said random things like butt cheeks or lasagna a lot. I don't... He was really nice to me, and he'd try to wave at me and say, Hi. And I'd say, You stupid bitch, you don't even got any arms. Get out of here. But he'd always hang around even though I was only ever mean to him. His name was Lucas. I liked him. I taught him about stingrays. I know a lot about them. He helped me feel better, I guess, having someone lower than I was. Somebody who would never leave. You're... Deirdre shakes her head. I'd say, hey, catch, and an imaginary ball would hit him in the face, and he'd say, fuck, cunt, buttersquash, and I'd say, stingrays are basically sleeker sharks with venom, and he'd say, almonds, or I'd be up in a tree and tell him to come join me, but he couldn't because he had no arms and all. Basically, he'd just smash his face into the bark over and over. It was funny. So, I should be mean? Asks Deirdre. There's a knock on Porter's door. Porter freezes. Ports? His mother says. Porter steps to the door, holding the gun in his hands. No! Deirdre says. Her wings dance and shake. She moves in the air like a bat. The room is silent except for Porter's low breathing. Porter points the gun towards his mother's voice. Ports, are you hungry? I can make something quick before dinner. Want a cucumber sandwich? The pistol's dark mouth hovers inches from the white door. Deirdre floats through the door to look at Porter's mother, then returns. She spins around looking for something to do. Fuckton looks up at her, then at Porter. Calm down. Can you help him? Fuckton says. Deirdre looks at Fuckton and shakes her head and breathes. For the second time, she disappears into Porter's mind. Fuckton waits, watching without moving at all. Hey, Ports, the mother says, knocking hard with the knuckle of her middle finger. I'm all right, Mom. Porter says while leaning his cheek against the door. All right, I'll be downstairs, she says. Porter moves away from the door. Deirdre reappears, smiling. Yes, she says with a shimmy of her shoulders. A ring of light floats above her horns. Deirdre reaches up to the left horn, which is now ivory, and tugs down at it. She pulls the horn until it snaps off her head. It turns to sand in her hands and floats to the floor. She tries to grab the other horn, but it hisses with heat when she touches it. 
Fuckton looks up at her. An angel with a black horn and a new halo. It means I'm more legit now, Deirdre says, pointing up proudly. Oh, all right. Good. Fuckton smiles. Deirdre smiles back, then frowns at herself. What's he doing now? Fuckton asks. Porter points the gun at a few more invisible people. Then he wraps the gun up in a t-shirt. He puts the gun and shirt in his book bag and zips it up. No, 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 Deirdre says. He wants them, Fuckton says. They deserve to feel bad just once. He feels bad every day. They deserve one bad thing. You don't know anything, Deirdre says. I do, Fuckton says quietly. He looks up at the angel. You did it, though, with his mom. How'd you do that? I showed him something he was forgetting. I used to have a mother, Deirdre says. The two of them shift through light and time. They're in a room with hardwood floors. There are posters with athletes and news clippings pinned to the walls. A middle-aged woman is thrashing and crying in a small bed covered in a thick purple comforter. Deirdre looks at the woman, and her black horn explodes entirely into blue flame as she floats down to the bed. Fuckton steps back to a far corner of the room. There's a prescription bottle in the woman's clenched fist. Hey, lady. Hey. Deirdre says at the woman's side. It's going to be okay. Why is she... You don't speak. Deirdre roars, God in her voice. She lost her daughter. That's why. Fuckton touches his hair, then his hole. The woman on the bed sits upright, then pulls a pillow from the bed and brings it to her face. She breathes deeply into the pillow, then opens up the bottle and pours a mountain of pills into her palm. Uh-oh, says Fuckton. Hey, easy. Mom, you're going to be okay. Deirdre cries along with the woman in the bed. Easy, easy, she whispers. Help her, please, Fuckton shouts. I know, I will, I am, says Deirdre. Then she disappears into her mother. Deirdre reminds her that in life, her daughter was a perpetual force, one that needed to be remembered loved, even now, that her daughter would never forgive her for ending things this way, and with all the focus she can muster, Deirdre shows her mother herself, her life as this woman's daughter, and her new angel life in the background. Before Deirdre even reappears in the room, her mother throws the handful of pills to the floor, they sound like falling hail when they scatter across the floor. Then Deirdre returns and looks at her mother once more. You did it, 
Fuckton says. I helped. That was light work. She's strong. I have more to do. But she's going to be fine. With another shift, they leave Deirdre's room. They are with Porter. It is the morning of the next day. Porter looks as if he hasn't slept. While staring into a mirror on his wall, he says, I am godlike wrath. I am the law. Today will be a good day. He leaves his room. He kisses his mother, then hugs her. She receives his hug warmly. Porter goes to wait for his bus. Deirdre and Fuckton follow. This one is different. I can't help him. I don't know how, Deirdre says. Show him bad stuff. He's like me. Try showing him something like Lucas. Show him maybe it could be worse. The bus comes. Fuckton sits in the first row in the empty seat next to Porter. Porter smiles at each student who passes him as they board. Fucking tweak, a tall girl says as she passes. Porter grins greedily at her. Sheesh, Deirdre says, looking at Porter. He doesn't even care anymore. Show him bad. Will that help? I think it could, Fuckton says, biting his lip. Okay. Then Deirdre disappears into Porter's mind. I used to hate when they noticed me. I get it, says Fuckton while looking at Porter. Then you think, if they'd just leave me alone, it'd get better. But then when they leave you alone, they leave you all the way alone. It's just as bad, worse. It's like you're nothing, nobody. I hated that. I waited until I got to college. One more chance. I gave them one more chance to fix it, but still nothing. Not one friend. No girls looked at me. No one even tried. And I, I gave them so many chances. Order of the Stingray. I've touched one before. A real stingray. They debarbed it so it wouldn't kill everyone. I felt bad for it. But it's not a real thing. The order isn't real. We aren't wizards. I know you think they deserve it. What do you deserve, though? You think you're already dead. But you're not. He can't hear you. And they don't deserve anything. You killed Deirdre Hayes, and look at you now, Deirdre says, as she appears back above the two boys. Her wings swing hard and fast. Her voice feels like it's coming from every direction. It's just that I know the feeling, Fuckton says, looking down. I'm remembering more. I'm trying to do what you are. I want to help. Now you want to help people. I needed help before. Fuckton runs his hand through his hair twice. Then he speaks again. Did it work? No, it didn't. It wasn't a good idea. Dang. Okay. Yeah, Deirdre says. Well, I was thinking anyway. 
I probably used you because you seem like a good person. You look nice. Like people would care about you, the news and stuff. I remember feeling like that. Is that an apology? Never mind. I'm an angel now. Those of my station look forward, not backward. Okay, but you said Deirdre. That was your name. Deirdre was her name. Right. Porter stands up and walks off the bus. The students swarm toward the school's doors. They laugh and joke as they walk and shove all around him. His fingers strangle his backpack straps. I'm going to remind him that it can be better. I have to try again. Don't do that, Fuckton says as children walk through him. People will die if you do that. People are about to die anyway. It's going to be soon. I have to try. Fuckton looks up at the angel. I think, maybe, I think if he knew what I know, can you show him that? What? That he won't be the great calling, or the changeover, or the beginning of a new era, or whatever. That he'll just be dead in a bathroom. That the order of the stingray isn't a real thing, and it won't feel like he thinks. It won't feel good. I don't know if I can show him all that. I don't know what killing is like. I can show him, maybe. I'll do what you do, but with what I know, with this feeling I have. Will you let me? Deirdre looks at Fuckton and then at Porter, who is at his locker twisting a dial. I think that all you are is that feeling now. I think that if you give it to him, show it to him, you'll really be nothing, she says, pointing to the hole in his chest. Do you think I was always a bad person? Fuckton asks. I don't know. We don't have a lot of time. This is the most anyone has ever really talked to me. You know me more than anyone already. Do you think I was always like that? I don't know. Probably not, Deirdre says as she floats down to the floor. I know you've been through a lot, but we don't have time. I know. Fuckton opens a hand, releasing Deirdre's feather. It glows and rides the air before settling into her wing. I wish it was different. I'm sorry. I wasn't always like that. I think I can help you show him, Deirdre says. You probably won't last through it, okay? Porter opens his locker. He puts the bag in his locker and unzips it. Let me do it. Before it, though, do you still hate me? I'm an angel now, she says as she takes Fuckton's hand. Then, the two of them are living through Porter Lanks. They see the halls of Wet Moss High covered in photos of his awkward, naked body. They see Porter standing up to a taller, stronger boy. They feel a fist on their ribs, their nose shattering. And then they are Porter. 
They feel him as he pulls a trigger. They are Porter as he watches the people running from him. They watch as he sees himself being the only thing anyone can think or talk about for years to come. They see the glorious moment when, like a warlock, Porter will end the ingrate of his choosing on this day of glorious judgment. His name will burn eternally. Children will cry when they hear his name. He will rule their nightmares. Porter sees them running. Porter sees them bleeding. He was the one who should have been worshipped. He was the one. And then Porter Lanx sees himself dying. He feels the wondrous glory bleed out of him. Was it ever even there? He sees himself in the bathroom near the tech hall, alone as ever in his stall. The stall that still says, Porter Lanx is a frog. It used to say, Porter Lanx is a fag. But he spent a study hall period trying to carve something else, something that would still satisfy them, but something he could look at every day and not feel like he was already dead. He can see that when he's in the bathroom stall, he won't be the king of great carnage, but something much lower, stupider than even a frog. People will remember his name, until they don't. In the crowded halls of Wetmoss High, Porter reaches into his backpack and pulls out a slim notebook and pen and a biology textbook. Deirdre floats beside him as he walks to the bathroom near the tech hall. He goes into his stall, and he begins to cry, silently, the way he used to. For fun, he uses his pen to carve a small arrow pointing down between the words A and frog, and writes, flying. How to Sell a Jacket, as told by Ice King A mother and father and their two kids. Mother's eyes are on the pole face, trademark, sign. There's a small smirk on my face, and I say, kind of to everyone but mostly to mother, what are we looking for today? Like I've been waiting for them my whole life. They look at me, and because... I saw how they came in, how their eyes pushed toward the back of the store. I already know what's coming when Mother says, Well, um, so I beat her there. The best sale we have in the store right now is on our winter coats and jackets. She says, That's what I like to hear. And we might as well mark up the sale right there. Seventh and tenth in the entire nation, so clap it up for that, Angela, the store manager, announced. The whole store flapped their hands at us. I watched them clap. I've been top ten in the nation for two years straight. There's a good chance this year I'll crack top three in company history. Total sales. Still, it's a strange thing when a bunch of people, some you like, some you hate all over again every shift, are clapping for you. And you have to kind of smile a little bit, but not too much, as if to say, Yes, I am in fact the shit. While they clapped, 
Florence smiled her perfect smile. I watched her, too. Her second week in the store, Florence made a girl who came in for a hat for her boyfriend leave with a new fall wardrobe. Florence started not even a year ago. She's what some might call a natural. But really, I taught her a lot. Now, when girls come in looking for jeans, they ask, Is Florence in today? Like only Florence can divine the necessary denim for their begging hips. Still, it's me Angela uses when she needs an example of what to do right. Even though, when she's talking about how to be a good employee, everybody knows I don't do any of the things she's talking about. Except sell. In the mall, the only truths that matter are the kinds you can count. Sales goals, register tills, inventory. Numbers are it. Everything else is mostly bullshit. I'm lead sales associate because of my numbers. When managers step out to grab food or smoke or fuck in the shipment bay, they point to me and say, Hold the floor down. Sometimes they'll hand me a clipboard with everybody's break times and daily goals. Whenever I'm on the clock, my daily goal is the highest. They think it motivates me. The family follows me to the pole face trademark section. I walk so quickly, they have to work a little to keep up. So, who are we trying to keep warm this winter? I'm walking fast because, one, I don't want any distractions keeping us from where we need to be, and two, I don't want Florence to come around making suggestions, and three, I want the family to get used to living life at my pace. The youngest child is a small girl. You can't even imagine her as a teenager. The other kid is a pimply boy, maybe fourteen. I smile at the kids quickly. I set my jaw and keep a thoughtful look on when I make eye contact with father. When I look at mother, I imagine my own mother. I smile with all the love of the world in my eyes. Our store is basically a big warehouse with hangers and racks. We have clothes popularized by rappers and skateboarders. Families like this one are why I'm ranked nationally. Two kids still happy enough to shop together. White. Very American dreamish. We're thinking about a coat for me, and maybe this one. Father says out of the side of his mouth while gesturing toward the son who's drifting off toward the graphic tees. Something that will last? Mother says definitively. Look at this, the young girl says. She pulls a blue shirt off a table. The shirt has a green moose on it. We stop to turn to the small child. I smile at her, then wait. Put that down, Mother says. But, Leah... Mother says in that tone doctors must gift to new parents right after they have their first kid. Leah's smile melts. She starts to toss the shirt back. A bunch of our best outerwear comes with a gift card as part of our winter sale, I say. Leah stops in her tracks. She smiles. She whips her look to Dad's eyes, then Mom's, and then back to Dad's waiting for a face that says yes. Oh, really? Mother says. Yep, I say. We're back on track to pole face, trademark. Leah's throttling the blue shirt, then wearing it like a boa. When her parents aren't looking, I wink at her, and we share a big smile. 
We pass the front register where Angela is standing guard and working backup. I feel her eyes as I lead the pack to the winter section. My section. It's my break time, but Angela knows to let me work. I take extra time on my breaks. When I'm not on break, I'll go to the bathroom and I'll sit on the toilet, doing nothing for fifteen minutes sometimes. Every few minutes I flush the toilet so I can listen to the water escaping. The district manager treats me to pizza when he visits. He doesn't have to ask what I like anymore. Two pepperoni slices and an iced tea. Most people get all nervous when they hear Richard is coming in. Me? My mouth waters. That's his name. Richard. Nobody calls him anything else to his face. I can't remember the last time Richard called me by my name. He calls me Ice King. Every time he sees me, it's, There he is! The mighty Ice King! He started calling me that after my second Black Friday, a particularly gruesome one, where I doubled my expected total. He said I was Ice King because I was the lord of the winter sale season. I don't call Richard anything, even though over one of our lunches, he said, Call me Rich. I'm not there yet, but a guy can dream, right? He laughed, and I made myself laugh the same way he did. So, this is everything. I motion with my arms like, Welcome to my humble abode. There are thin jackets and fleeces on floor racks, Ski jackets and heavy coats hang like limp bodies from face-outs in the walls. There are even tiny jackets for infants. What do we need? I say to the family, reminding them they need something. Thanks, buddy. I think we're okay to just browse around, father says. He needs something for when we go skiing, mother says with a sigh. In Denver, she adds like she's letting some big secret out. I keep my smile low. That's great. This whole section here, I walk a few steps, they follow, is designed specifically for skiers and snowboarders. I stop in front of these jackets that have bright colors accented by reflective silver. They look like speed. They are thinner than a lot of our other stuff. And they are some of the most expensive pieces in the store but this family can afford to see. I know what a desperate mother sounds like. This mother doesn't need a sale, but she considers herself a smart shopper. They are a happy family. I am Ice King. If anybody has what I have, it's Florence. She is like me. Angela says Florence practically filled out her application while in labor. That's why she's so good. She's a mom even though we're both young enough that working here isn't automatically depressing. You have to think you're stuck for it to be. Also, Florence is pretty. Me? I got words and a smile. I wear clothes that show kids I know what's up. I hook a snapback hat so it hangs through the loops of my jeans. Florence can do all that and she's pretty. She has deep dimples. Her hair is always doing something amazing. When the cashiers ask, Did anyone help you out today? Customers say, The one with the nice hair, when they mean Florence. 
When they mean me, they say, the tall one, if they're white. If they're black, they say, the black guy. A family like this one, it doesn't matter who actually needs anything. Mom is the mark. Hmm, Mother says, looking to me for a second opinion. The jacket Father has on is a credibility jacket. They need to see me not like something. Father is frowning, looking at his arms and the material. It's black and blue, and it happens to have the ability to completely transform into a backpack. I say this several times. I don't need anything fancy. It's just skiing, Father says. He didn't even want to come to the mall today. Yeah, now that it's on you, I'm not so sure about it, I say. Father looks at me and tries not to smile. You have a bunch to choose from. This one might be better for your son, maybe. He can get whatever he wants. Father starts peeling himself free. But I don't need a jacket that turns into a purse. Yeah, I say, chuckling like he does. The wife folds her arms and waits for something to happen. While her husband wrestles out of the jacket, I look at Mother. She rolls her eyes. I do the same. Without words, together we say, men make everything so difficult. Then, as I'm taking the jacket from a still-grumbling father, I look at him like, women, am I right? What about me? The little girl with the blue shirt says. Mother and father both slam looks at her. Leah frowns silently. I flash her a smile, and she flashes a bigger one back. I think... I look around and settle on the coat. It's thick and olive green. It is heavy, but I'll say this explicitly, it's got vents that keep the material breathable. Yeah, I think this one is the one. I know it's the one. I saw Father's eyes linger on it as he tried on the first jacket. I know Mother will like it because it looks expensive. It is expensive, though slightly cheaper than the credibility jacket. I can upsell. I can downsell. I can do it all. I'll try that one, Father mumbles. They don't have to tell me the size. With the first coat, I grabbed a large, because they run a little bit bigger. This time I grab an extra large. Instead of just handing him the coat like before, I hold it open for him and drape him in it, so his first memory of wearing it will be one of ease. Thanks, he says. He zips it, unzips it, shrugs his shoulders once, twice. Then he looks at his wife. Working here, I've learned that married men use their wives as mirrors. Florence has sold three winter coats today already. Florence is currently seventh in the nation in sales. She's the real deal. But I'm me. I carve Ice King in the walls of the shipping halls. That way, even when I'm done with the mall, my legend will live forever. Father is waiting for Mother to say yes, but then he sees she's looking at me. I smile and nod, then circle Father once, pretending to be inspecting closely for some minor detail we might have overlooked. They're both watching me as I orbit. 
I think this is the one, I say finally. I do too, Mother says immediately. Father goes to look at himself in a mirror. Leah tugs at a jacket on a hanger. The young boy, he's just drifting back to the group. You think it's okay? Father asks. Yeah, it's simple but clean looking, and it definitely looks solid, I say. I've said the same thing the same way to so many different faces. Mm-hmm. You can tell it's quality, Mother says. How much is this thing going to run me? Father says as he grabs the red tag dangling from the front zipper. He frowns deeply. If it's a family that won't pay for the pole face, trademark, after I show them the price, they'll say something like, You're shitting me, right? Or, Okay, but what's the real price? Right away I say, I know. Crazy, right? Like it was a big joke. I'll rush to the cheaper stuff. I have about thirty seconds before they disappear. But before they're gone, I'll show them. This here? Another jacket of equal quality and half the price is what I wear when I'm upstate in Albany. Albany? Yeah. I visit a lot. I'm going to school up there. A wish. A lie. I don't know. It's freezing, I'll say. You don't say, they'll say back. That's a whole lot to ask for one jacket, Father says. Well, part of it is the lifetime warranty, I say. And then, of course, Florence appears. And right now, she says, we're doing a new sale where for purchases of more than $200 on any combination of coats and jackets, you get a gift card back. She's holding a clipboard. She stands there, and you can feel the family deciding who they want as master. Want me to toss that one behind the register for you while you look for another? Then Florence turns to me. She says, Angela told me to tell you to go on break. Her voice is sweet and acid. I stand for a second. Today they officially promoted Florence. Her name tag, where it used to say sales associate, says assistant manager. Last Black Friday, I sold almost $18,000 worth of coats, fleeces, and jeans by myself. It was a store record. Also, they had a contest that year. Whoever sold the most got a pole face, trademark, item. I got my mom a jacket. It didn't fit right. She hardly wears it. Richard bought me an entire pizza. I didn't share it with anybody in the store. I ate one slice waiting for the bus. I held the greasy box on my lap for the ride. That was my big prize for the day, until they could work out the paperwork for my coat. I ate one more slice then, when the bus stopped and I got off. I left the pie with a guy sleeping on cardboard outside the station. I like to remind Angela and Richard and Florence and whoever's around that I won't be here forever. I can sell, but I'm not one of them. Whenever they try to get me to do extra stuff, I have to remind them that 
even though this is what I do best. Soon, I'll be doing some other thing even better. I think of saying, Oh, I actually just came from break, to Florence. But I am tired. I've worked a long time. I look at the family in Florence. I say, Well, all right, guys. Florence here will help you out. I look for some sadness in the eyes of father and mother. They're looking at Florence. Well, I think I'm going to take this, father says like he had a choice. Are you sure we can't do anything about the price? Mother says. Well, if you think your son might like some of these ski jackets, Florence says, we do have an additional deal for multiple significant purchases. Florence was late twice during her first week. Angela told her a third strike was a third strike no matter how good she was. Five minutes before Florence was supposed to punch in that weekend, my phone buzzed. I was sitting in the bathroom listening to the swirl and hiss of the water beneath me. Flush. 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 Please. Please, I need you. My babysitter was late. I need you to punch me in. I'm on my way. I'm coming, but I'll be late. All Florence's words had tears on them. Okay, I said. I tried to make my voice sound unmoved. That's it? Florence asked. Yeah, I said. If Angela finds out, won't it be bad? Not for me, I said. And she won't. Tell me your username and password. They're both Nalia XO. All right, I said. Angela never found out. Before that, I thought me and Florence were the same. We are not. She's her. I am Ice King. At the register, I punch out for break. Angela smiles warmly at the massive winter coat and the colorful jacket approaching in Florence's hands. The family trails her closely. Did anyone help you today? Angela asks, sweetly. Absolutely. She even hauls the goods. Father chuckles as he points his thumb toward Florence. From behind the counter, I smile weakly at the family. Mother, father, and son look at me and see a stranger. Florence looks at us all and sees food. Leah looks at me and smiles a wide, crazy smile. Angela stares off toward the entrance and says, Hey, Richard. How are you today? Richard's eyes bounce from Florence to me, then back to Florence. My mouth waters. In Retail in retail, if you don't want to be a Lucy, you got to find ways to make the bleak a little better. Lucy was that girl who jumped from the fourth floor last month on her lunch break. She used to be a cashier at Taco Town. Now, she's a verb. I'm going to Lucy if today doesn't move any faster. And a noun. New girl never smiles. Looks like a Lucy. I try not to disrespect the dead. 
It's other people in the prominent from all different stores who use her name a lot. I've been here a while now, and the most important thing I've learned is that if you want to be happy here in the prominent mall, you have to dig happiness up, because it's not going to just walk up to you and ask how you're doing. That is, unless somebody who doesn't speak the language walks up to you. That's different. I love it when older Spanish ladies come into the store looking for something for their daughters or sons or nieces or nephews, and none of the Spanish speakers are in, so they have to deal with me. I like it when they're older women, because a lot of us younger types aren't so good at not being assholes to each other. I think having had money and then having lost it and had it again and lost it some more, some older people kind of just say, Screw it. I'm going to smile. Maybe they're just too tired to be mean. Speak Spanish? The lady will begin. She'll say that much in English. But even those two words she'll sing in a way English speakers just don't. Here, I'll close one eye, bring up my hand to measure out an inch of air between my thumb and pointer finger as I reply, Muy poquito? I say it with a smile and a laugh. She'll smile back and say, Un poco inglés. And we'll both laugh as if to say, I guess we'll meet somewhere in the middle. She'll carry most of the burden. Her English is way better than my Spanish, despite the fact that I got an 86 on the Spanish Regents in high school. Una camisa para... She'll look around. And I'll jump in like, un niño o niña. And the lady's eyes will light up like blown coals. And she'll smile honestly and widely and say, niña, niña. She'll tap you on your shoulder gently as a way of telling you how well you're doing. She'll be more excited than she has to be. And so will you. Pay attention to this moment. Suck it in like the last sip in the juice box. Okay, so now we walk over to the women's side of the store. We'll be moving together in stride as if we've been friends for years. She might be saying a lot of words in Spanish now, and I'll understand almost none of them. But I will know she's being extremely friendly, and I'll enjoy the sound of her. If I'm lucky... I'll catch one of the words I've hung on to from those basic-level Spanish classes. There's no way I deserved that 86 I got on the Spanish Regents. Miss Ramirez, my teacher, was at best unorthodox and at worst absolutely bonkers crazy. She liked me because I pretended to believe all her insane stories. She once told the entire class that her dog, one of those little living accessory dogs that spends most of its life in a pleather handbag, hung itself by slipping through the beams of her deck after securing the other end of the leash beneath one of the patio chairs. She said it was proof that even animals could think and feel. I think she wanted us to become vegetarians. After she told that story, some kids asked her to elaborate. Surely she didn't mean that her dog had literally hung itself because it was unhappy with the life she had provided for it. Of course not, Miss Ramirez had said. It wasn't actually her dog. 
Her dog, Paprika, had loved her dearly. The dead-by-asphyxiation dog was actually her neighbor's dog, unnamed. At some point, there had been a mix-up. Well, not exactly a mix-up, but a switcheroo. Miss Ramirez's neighbor, Sidney, a recurring villain in Miss Ramirez's world, after seeing how much Paprika loved Miss Ramirez, decided to get a dog of the same exact breed and size. When Sydney's tiny new dog didn't glow with the same delightful charm as Paprika, Sydney concocted and executed a scheme to switch the dogs, leaving Miss Ramirez with an identical, though evidently psychologically troubled, mutt. Miss Ramirez decided to allow the switch to happen without saying a word. But why, Miss R? We asked as a class. How could you let that happen? And then she took off her glasses like she always did when she wanted more drama and used her other hand to point at her chest as she said, Mi corazón es grande. So Miss Ramirez was not all there. But I got on her good side and I set up camp. I laughed at the supposed-to-be-funny parts of her stories. I scowled when she mentioned Sidney's name. I treated her myths as history. She was pretty much talking to herself during the oral part of my exam, leaving me nodding and saying, See, while reaffirming that regardless of what she was saying, Mi comida favorita es pollo y arroz. And... Mi color favorito es rojo. I think she needed us to do pretty well on the regents to get tenure. And so, as we're walking toward the women's side of the store, and I'm listening to the chorus of Spanish I don't understand, I'll stop walking as this lady, who is at this point practically my best friend, says, Rojo. Una camisa rojo, sí. I'll say with a triumphant smile. And the woman will practically jump in the air with happiness. She might grab my shoulder again. This time it'll be more than a tap. A hug of the hand. I'll just barely feel her nails through my t-shirt. We're like old friends now. The kind that know the worst about each other. And don't always speak, but check in enough and decorate the internet with pictures of each other's kids. Finally, we'll get to the shirts, and there'll be so many choices. I'll run my hand above them like there's a harp there and do a little dance. She'll clap and smile and then touch me once more on the shoulder and say, Gracias, gracias. And she'll laugh. I'll laugh, too. Both laughs will taper off because we'll understand that this is the end of the road for us. We'll smile at each other, and I'll say, Look for me if you need anything else. And she'll reply in her singing vernacular, Okay, okay. And I'll walk off toward a mountainous wall of quarter-folded jeans that have to be counted before 12.30. Yesterday, there were 1,598 pairs. Today, there should be 1,595. We count them every day now since Richard is really trying to push on the loss prevention side of things. Work is hard to find. There's a tiny angel at home who needs me, so I work for her. And I'm good at this, getting people to buy things. 
so I count. I count the columns of jeans with my clipboard and pen to keep track. I count up each section, then add the section totals together at the end. If what I get doesn't exactly match the computer inventory, I'll count them again, touching each pair of jeans, feeling the starchy blue denim pull the moisture from my fingertips. The Spanish lady sifts through the piles, trying to find the perfect pair. When she finally does grab a shirt she likes, you can see she's pleased from the way she glides to the register. She is going to make someone happy. You have to grab for happiness in places like this, because there isn't enough to go around for everybody. Working retail is never going to be the armed services or the police or anything. It's a job, at least. It could be worse. Everywhere is different. Some places, people eat alcohol-infused, chocolate-covered strawberries. Other places, everything tastes like cholera. The idea is that even in nothing jobs like this, you need to think of ways you might really be helping somebody. Or you could end up a Lucy. I hate using her name like that, but everybody in the mall does it. The best salesperson in our store told me not to think about it too much, because pretty soon it would be somebody else. He said that every six months or so, somebody takes the big dive. Before Lucy, he told me it was Jen from Radio Castle. Before Jen, it was Antoine who left Fleet Feet in the middle of his shift and fell backward from the railing, his hands still clasped in prayer. Lucy knows what gravity really is. Lucy went to knock on the door most of us pretend doesn't even exist. The day it happened, the mall was in a frenzy. A lot of stores were doing a mid-season BOGO sale. You'd have thought the circus was back, which would have been weird because it had just left two weeks before. They'd set up in the G&H lots. They smelled like animal life and candy for two weeks. Walking to the bus stop, I'd seen a bunch of people huddled around the railing. By the time I looked down, they'd already tossed a yellow tarp over her. You could see some red had seeped into the carpet around the yellow edges. And that wasn't the sick part. The sick part was looking up and down, my store is on the third floor, at the people pointing or snapping pictures with their phones. I remember thinking, I just hope she died on impact. And I hoped that wherever she was, she remembered what those seconds before the ground were like. People said she screamed the whole way down, but I don't think she was afraid. I didn't know her name then. Down below me that day, I saw two kids near Cone Zone joking with each other and, like, pretending to lean over and fall. They were only one floor above Lucy and her yellow blanket. You'd think the mall would maybe close for a few hours, let people gather themselves, maybe light a candle or something. Nope. Buy one, get one stops for no one. I held Nalia in my arms that night and fell asleep with her on the couch. When we woke up together that morning, her coo and cry made me forget some of the sick feeling I'd felt through the night.
Go back to counting jeans. Think about anything and count. Don't think about how a small part of you wishes you'd seen it. Her standing on the railing of the fourth floor. Lucy, flying. Count. As I tally up the Levi's and think about how not to be Lucy, the beautiful lady who doesn't speak my language will appear behind me and tap me on the shoulder. Out of her bag, she'll pull a red shirt with some flowers outlined with gemstones on it. She'll show it to me.